You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and power athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. Hey, Power Athlete Nation. Welcome to Power Athlete Radio, episode 714, featuring Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin. Sadly, this will be the last episode featuring Tex as my co-host. Chris held the position of Director of Training for Power Athletes since 2017, and he's been the co-host for the majority of the Power Athlete Radio episodes that you guys have listened to. So if you've been wondering why the most recent episodes of Power Athlete Radio are just me rocking it solo, it's because Chris has moved on to a new adventure for work and no longer lives in Austin. So we wish him all the best in his future endeavor. And like the Highlander, there can only be one. So buckle up and prepare for the new Power Athlete Radio. Welcome to an episode of Power Athlete Radio. We are going to discuss the updated academy and whatever else the future holds for us today. So I want to get in a little bit about the updated Academy. I know we've been working, you especially have been working a long time trying to reboot the information and put a better version of the methodology. Cause when we started the methodology, what was it 2017 we launched? Launched in 2017, but the initial conversations and you're going to laugh at this one, the vertical integration of coaching. <laughs> Uh, where did we get that vertical integration model? Was it Cal Dietz? I have no idea. So Cal Dietz, I think it, I, I'll, I'll relate it to Cal Dietz because I think it's funnier if we relate it to him. But there was something where he was, no, it was uh, Charlie Francis. It was Charlie, Charlie Francis. Charlie Francis had a vertical integration model. And what was hysterical as we kept talking about this vertical integration model in terms of training athletes, Luke was losing his mind because the vertical integration model that they used in terms of you know selling car parts for Navistar was completely different, and the way we were talking about a vertical integration model didn't exist. So it was like you know the age old of I think you think that you're using a word that you don't think you know the meaning of. Yeah, it, it, the that was awesome. So I man, I, I should have dug that up. I didn't even think about it, but uh, the original photos exist on the in the cloud. Oh, on Google Drive. Of the vertical integration. So I can try to dig those up for the show notes <laughs> of how smart we thought we were. Oh, God damn. Yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't yeah, a was vertical true. integration model as much as it was uh, not vertical. It was more pyramid shape-ish. Yes. And the, the same perspective that you, we would use to develop an athlete, that was our, that was our original thought and mission and, and guiding uh, guidance through this. Okay. We know how to develop athletes. We know how to put on an amazing seminar for two fucking days and kick the doors off and make everybody smarter drinking from a fire hose. Now we have the opportunity to turn this into a long form play of developing a coach. So we had all these tools and experience with athletes and then just being powerful educators. How do we turn this into long form? And that mm -hmm. was the, the spark well, I mean, we, we did it in a lot of interesting ways, especially with the podcast. You know, I mean, um, in an age where everybody's obsessed with YouTube shorts and, you know, micro dosing information at every turn. I mean, the fact that we have uh, long form discussions that go two and three hours. I mean, Joe Rogan really proved that long form discussion is not dead. 
that people are willing to invest if the if the information the conversation is empowering and engaging yeah and we used it selfishly because we had the opportunity to deep dive the literature apply it to your professional and personal journey experience as an athlete and the coaches you've learned from along the ways and then the the amazing people that we've met since your career through CrossFit, through Sorenex, through and seminars, through, the through conferences, into the podcast yeah. to now just pick up these ideas instead of just reading and citing them, exploring them. Yeah. Okay, how does Cal Dietz apply compensatory acceleration or a lunge uh, movement through space? And then how, do, how does Ruiz apply this, taking from establishing a base level into what he does with his athletes? So all different uh, opportunities to pick up ideas and then wrestle with them to disseminate and synthesize what's best applicable for a coach. Like we've sifted through the bullshit. This goes back to one of the taglines. I forget where, whether it was for programming or just one of your videos, sifted through the bullshit and like just giving you the, the, the real raw, what you need to apply. Don't yeah. worry about anything else. Just do this. It will work. Well, there's um, always been a premium and almost like a gatekeeper for educating coaches. I mean, you can't swing a dead cat without seeing a program where people are trying to train athletes. Uh, you know, there's so much A to B content out there in terms of like, I'm a coach and I train athletes, but how do you educate a coach to become one of these A to Bs? And what we found teaching across the football seminars we weren't just nearly, merely going out and just teaching a methodology. We were trying to get people to level up their coaching, and that wasn't necessarily the initial intent. My thought originally when I got pitched doing cross the football is we had to go out and educate intelligent coaches on this new way to use CrossFit to train field sport athletes, You know that we can effectively tune these movements into different sets, rep schemes, uh, You know, put a periodized you know, uh, strength program together and hand it to these individuals and let them run a hundred miles an hour. And what we realized very quickly was that where people were deficient, wasn't in programming or information. It was in the application and their knowledge of how to apply stuff. Oh, oh yeah. And then my coming from the, I guess the education realm into collegiate coaching witnessed the same thing. So where we met at a point in the in the seminars, the fifth ever, December 20, 2009, yeah. 2009, 2009. The yeah, I saw the same things where I was not, I didn't have mentorship with what I wanted to do because I was working with Division three athletes with limited equipment, a fitness center, and I needed to take thirty dudes where they couldn't take themselves. We needed to level up, so introduce the seminar and the tools to do so. When you showed up, did you think it was a programming issue? The, because that's where I feel like everybody starts. It's a good question. Where, where you get into it, where you're like, man, I just need better programming. If only I knew how to like what to do with these athletes. And uh, I don't think that the limiting factor is knowledge. I don't think that uh, it's an absence of a good program. I mean, there's good programming everywhere. Um, I think it, it falls from the trees if you shake it hard enough. I think where things really disseminate and you start getting a huge diversion in the market is who can apply it best and who understands what they're trying to get out of each movement, each training session and what I'm looking to do. Yes. Well, I had been on CrossFit football program following it. So then, but my, my selfish reason to get there was to learn how to coach the program I was following, mm. but I was not, I was the exception to the, the rule. Most people it. wanted the program. 
Well, I mean, uh, think about at the seminar when we got up and we took them through the athletic uh, pyramid and the paradigm and how we did everything. Um, people were really obsessed with like the nuts and the bolts of like, well, how does this program work? And, uh, you know, is it fives? Is it fours? Is it sixes? Is it this? I mean, people were so stuck in the minutiae that, you know, if you squat fives, oh, you're going to be a lot better than if you squat threes or tens or whatever it is. And I, I kind of got wrapped around this like weird axle of like, the numbers are the numbers. Like, what are you trying to do? But at the end of the day, the execution is what's key. Um, you know, I'm not as into, you know, like a, a guy posted a video for feedback where he was running on the trampoline and, you know, he was probably getting his knees up about this high. The arm swing was really short. And my thing was like high knees, cheek to cheek, just make it nice and smooth. He was so obsessed with going fast that he completely destroys the entire uh, like theme of why we're doing this movement. We're teaching high knees. We're trying to teach posture and arm swing. And when you're doing like little drummer boy and the knees are coming up this high, it's destroying it. Like, did you do what was asked? Yeah, you did trampoline sprints, but how they were done. So I feel like that was something that really amazed me is I was surprised that people were so into like, well, do we do trampoline sprints or skips or whatever it is? And I'm like, I don't know, like what can the athlete do well? At the end of the day, their ability to execute and do something well is by far the gold standard. Yeah, and execution is everything. The I think this my coming from a athletic background, like it doesn't matter what offense or defense you run, how is it how is it executed? So we can take University of Maryland number one programs defense, and then we're trying to run it without University of Maryland athletes. It's not going to fucking work. Sure. So that was my perspective. I'm I have my individuals. How can I just squeeze the most out of them so we can at least stand a chance? Well, there's two theories, right? There's a Bill Belichick where we have a system and we're going to find players that fit our system or you're going to, you know, there's other teams that say, I'm going to draft the best players. I'm going to sign the best players. And then I'm going to find a system that allows them to do the best. You know, um, you know, take Andy Reid, for example. Um, you know, he had a, a guy like Donovan and some of the other quarterbacks. He goes to Kansas City and ends up getting Mahomes who is probably like the culmination, you know, if you were to look at like Randall Cunningham and McNabb and uh, Warren Moon and all these great, you know, Michael Vick, all these, uh, you know, great kind of, you know, black athletic uh, move around in the pocket quarterbacks. And now you get a guy like Mahomes who has this incredible arm coming from baseball and this ability to see and toughness and all these key factors. And Andy's like, we already got the system. We don't have to necessarily rewrite the book. We just got to put them with great players. And, uh, you know, whereas Belichick is like, this is our system. We're going to find people that fit it. And it doesn't matter if they're a division three or, you know, walking L in off a the lacrosse street, player, a lacrosse player, as long as they fit within the system that I have in place. So, I mean, it, it, there's always been this in the NFL and professional sports. You see it in basketball. I mean, basketball is even a little bit more different in that the team goes and signs the best player they can. And then they just go find a coach that can work with that player more so than, you know, the days of the, the Pat Riley's and the, um, um, you know, all these like a great, you know, uh, um, who's the guy I'm thinking about for uh, Phil Jackson. Yeah, Phil Jackson. You have these amazing people that are able to take these guys on their journey. Now it's like, just get LeBron and then find a coach that he doesn't hate and we'll win, you know, championships. Well, yeah, he doesn't hate for now. And then yeah. in two years, you get somebody else. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's really evolved, but I feel like basketball is a sport where one player can make all the difference. Whereas well, it's 20% of the dudes on the team. Yeah. So, how many is 20% of 11? So then we get one, two, three guys, yeah. and imagine how bad if one, two, three guys were really bad, how it affects on offense. Well, I mean, in football, 
I always thought one player doesn't make a difference. And then you send Tom Brady down to Tampa Bay and it did make a big difference. I mean, they were literally one player away from a team that didn't make the playoffs. And then you throw in Tom Brady and they win the Super Bowl. I mean, there was a lot of magic going on. You had players like Fournette and other guys coming back. But I mean, there was a thing where one player made all the difference. In that, yeah, rigged scenario. Was that rigged? I don't know. You tell me. Uh, I, I mean, I'm the conspiracy theorist. Uh, you are the professional NFL athlete. I'm just kidding. No, no. I mean, it's, it, it's a, it's a good thought process. If the NFL was going to be fixed, it wouldn't be with the players. I've always said, if you want to fix it, you got to deal with the refs or the person who's magically. Well, same the with the NBA yeah. as proven, uh, Phil Donahue or Donaghy. There's, there's a good documentary on Netflix for that, but well, in, in basketball, um, you can, you know, guys can shape points, right? They can slow down. They can kick a ball out of bounds. I mean, there's, there's enough things, especially with a guy ball handling with like point shaving, but in football, I mean, if, uh, like, let's say an offensive lineman, uh, decides to throw the game and he misses a block, he does it two times. He's out of the game. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, um, it's pretty damn hard to do it in football. The only way you're going to do it. And I've told you, we played in a playoff game. I think it was in green Bay. And on an 18 play drive, we had like three TV timeouts. Yeah. Like we were, we were like running the ball, running the ball, boom, boom, TV timeout. And we're like standing out there. It's cold. Everybody's getting cold. Okay, let's go back. And then they called another. And then they called another one in the red zone. And like we had three TV timeouts. It was almost like nine minutes of, of, uh, inter of intermission on an 18 play drive. At that point, we were like, the fix is in. We didn't win the game anyway. Well, there you go. Yeah. So pulling us back to uh applying your experience from professional athletes and the training and preparation you were on a mission an opportunity through the CrossFit football seminar to now disseminate and deliver this to let's call them narps non-athletic regular people mm. at these seminars did you just coin that word no i did not i actually stole that from uh coach cody who huh. was a division 1 lacrosse player but uh yeah they used to call those uh the rest of the people on campus narps but uh. um Civilians. I usually call them civilians. Normies. Normies. Uh, yeah, but then and then I mean the evolution even from seminar one to five, and then when I had the opportunity to begin to teach in 2012, three years later, I mean speak to that gap from 2009 showing uh, film to then okay yeah. here's a here's a. A package, a product. Well, let's go kick some ass today. I had never taught a seminar. So when CrossFit asked me to teach a seminar, I didn't know what that meant. I'd never been to a seminar. I mean, the only seminar I've really been to for performance or really just anything athletically was for CrossFit level one. Um, I know that we had to watch film. I know that there was uh, um, lectures. I know there was workouts. I mean, they, they taught their basic movements. I mean, I understood the basic structure of the seminar, what they were trying to teach. So uh, me and my limited experience figured, um, let's train these guys like we would train football players and seeing as that I was a football player and I'd been trained many times. So I reached out to the smartest people I know, which was Mr. Ruiz and Kelly Starrett and Andy Stumpf and uh, asked them to come in and teach pieces. I wanted Roth to come in and teach a sprint because I don't think that you can train athletes if you don't have a conversation about sprinting. Mm -hmm. It just, it, like, it feels incomplete to me. Um, if you're going to talk about athleticism and you're going to talk about movement and you're going to teach a seminar, you have to at least address sprinting. You know, there can, you can go to a sprinting specific seminar, but to teach, to not teach, or at least not dress running, which is probably the greatest 
example of athleticism we know. I mean, I remember Cal Dietz calling me. He's like, dude, I can watch somebody run 10 yards and I can tell you where they're deficient in a lot of things. Yeah. And the seminar included 5105, yep. yep. the L drill, and then just simple acceleration. Yep. Which was, um, you know, th these are really hallmarks for the combine. So mm -hmm. the 5105 vertical sprint change direction. And it was really pretty interesting for me in that, um, these were common things for us to do as NFL players. Uh, we did it for conditioning. We did it for testing. We did it through the off season, all of a sudden throwing a bunch of CrossFit coaches and athletes and people that were there for knowledge into this, uh, actually added a certain layer to the seminar when we realized that people didn't know this stuff. So I, um, you know, to joke, I kind of come from this ivory tower, this bubble where, you know, what do you mean you don't know this stuff? And we threw people into what I thought was a proper training seminar. I remember after lunch on the first day, I started showing cut-ups, my cut-ups of like um, different blocking assignments and you know, running the ball and things that we did, staying square, moving step. And I thought that people would be interested in watching how the best athletes on the planet move, which I think is in the NFL. And it was easy to me. And I sat there with a clicker and clicked back and forth and tried to like coach and like, you know, like a coach and like take the red uh, pointer and show. And people were just like, what is this? And um, I quickly realized that the product that I thought that people wanted or needed was very different than the product I was giving them. So then we needed evolution. And by the time we get to the fifth seminar, we'd actually had enough strikes and enough feedback to start kind of melting it. Uh, we taught a ton of manual resistance. Um, that was always big into the seminar just because it's always been a big part of our own training. The idea of uh, using manual resistance to fatigue neuromuscular pathways and then forcing somebody to do something dynamic was a foundation of Raphael's training. And he still does it. I mean, we still do it. So teaching that, but then realizing that, you know, people training alone in the garage, how are they going to do manual resistance? And more importantly, actually teaching the efficacy of manual resistance was a big piece. So by the time we got to the fifth seminar, there was a, I, actually, I thought that was probably one of our better ones. Uh, Rob had just, had the black box summit and was extricated out of CrossFit. And mm -hmm. we had already asked him to go give the nutrition tag team with me. So, um, Rob's always been a good friend. I'm not going to flake on him at that point. So he shows up to teach that CrossFit shows up to video it. And, uh, needless to say, I don't think that they ever put those videos out or really anything ever after that. No, it was a, a monumental, uh, I remember Freddie C danger wad was there. Jesse. Yeah. Jesse gray. Yeah. Um, then the Cal softball player, I forget her um, name. Jocelyn Forrest. Jocelyn Forrest. It was 45 people, packed house. Yeah. And I honestly, I don't know how all the information that I took away was in 16 hours. Because then later on, when I got to teach this stuff, it was like, well, we had to, you know, cut this piece out because maybe efficacy, maybe because our our time and efficiency as teachers wasn't up to snuff as the pros or the, um, the OGs? No, I think what we figured is people needed a certain amount of time to be able to digest it and they needed a slower pace. We were trying to cram as much information as we could into the time that was given to the point where like we couldn't even ask questions. You know, we had a schedule and I knew, you know, and what's wild is I kept the and schedule. And a test. Yeah, we had a programming test or actually it was a written test. Mm -hmm. It eventually went to a, a programming uh, test. Uh, uh, multiple choice. Yeah. That's what I took. Yeah. So there was a multiple choice test and then people started failing that. Then it became a programming test where we put together in groups and people did programming. I don't know if you remember that. That, might, that, was, that was after you. And then it got to the point 
where it was a programming assignment that they had to do at home and bring it home. Yes. So that switched. We, we turned the home when I started to, to get involved because it was, you know, two hours of programming lecture. Instead, it was day yeah. one, bedrock, day two, uh, field strong intermediate athlete. And so they had an opportunity to do the homework overnight for the bedrock yeah. workouts. Well, um, the actual at home was the solution because as I asked them to program, and I want to say it was in Europe or maybe, no, it was either Europe or Tampa. Um, both of those gyms, kind of the one in Stockholm and the one in Tampa we did remind, like look the same in my mind. But we, uh, I sat there and I'd put people into groups and I'd say, hey, I need you to design programming. That's what it looks like. And I, then I would eavesdrop. Um, the basic understanding of like volume intensity arrangement and just like what the fuck are people doing um like never ceased to amaze me so i figured if i sent them home they would just go on the crossfit football site and copy workouts because then i would read it and i'd be like oh they copied the workout or they copied what like a week of programming off crossfit football good for them and those people would pass the people that wouldn't that decided to do their own stuff. I mean, it was just insane. Like they didn't, you know, and I would always ask you to hear me be like, how long does this workout take? I don't know. Well, load it up. Let's check. You know, they just had zero understanding of like arrangement and how long this workout. And you know, that if you remember from those original days, I said, if you're not doing your own program, how are you going to know how long these workouts are going to take? What do you know where the holes are? What are you going to have to prep for? What are going to be the limitations and the limiting factors? And I had a guy basically raise his hand. He's like, I would never do any of this shit. I, that's the reason our program is so successful because I write a bunch of shit I would never do. And I, I'm like, that's like a chef that doesn't eat their own food. Define successful. Um, that was uh, Jeremy Thiel's brother. And they had CrossFit Central here when it was a big, real big gym and he did all the programming. And I remember, and Zach Thiel's his name. Uh, I was like, Zach, you got to be able to like do this stuff. He's like, ah, I don't like any of it. I hate it all. And, um, you know, that was, uh, that was very telling. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, but we saw this evolution and the programming really, or just the, uh, the seminar pivoted, not, well, it pivoted to what people needed or what they could digest. So I think when we started, we had an idea of what people needed and we just tried to like hit them with the firehouse and the emails we got back over and over again was like, it was amazing. I don't know what I learned. I, I that was amazing. I can't take anything home. So, I mean, if you have the world's best program and the best seminar, but nobody can take anything home because they don't remember anything because it was too much, then that's where all of a sudden we started cutting the weight because it just felt like, okay, we're teaching this for um, our own egos. We're stroking our own egos. We're not actually helping people because they're not able to use any of this information. Yes. And that goes back to the experience we talked about with the different NFL installs, right? Forcing this and just about the ego. Uh, I'm more worried about my teaching of this rather than the students picking it up. Mm -hmm. uh, we see the same thing in academics. You have these amazing lectures. I'm sure you had some awesome dudes in when your college experience, but then you had teachers. So teachers try to meet people where they are and lead them to the end of the information versus just listen to me pontificate for 60 and then fuck you. I'll see you at the exam. Like, yeah. so while you know, lectures is impressive. I mean, you remember the teachers and the coaches that led you to where you where you are. Yeah. No, it's um, it's amazing to think of the evolution. 
and where we started and how idealistic it was and what I thought people needed without really any understanding of what people needed because, I mean, we owned a gym, so we were technically working with athletes and training people and working with clients. But uh, understanding what the world needed, from my point of view, was extremely narrow. Uh, and I think you have this idea of, uh, or at least I did, of like elite human performance of that, like everybody's going to be tip of the spear and it's not what people need. I mean, I think everybody needs to see that. Like everybody should watch the Olympics. Everybody should watch the the best in the world. Like, you know, like for example, at jujitsu, they should watch, you know, uh, you know, who's number one's coming up and all these things. They should see the best guys in the world do it. But at the end of the day, how does that affect them going to their local jits gym and just rolling? You know, you're 40 years old and you can go two days a week and, you know, you get out there and you roll for two hours a week and learn some technique in this. And then you get a chance to watch the best in the world. Like, what are you hoping to, you know, are, are you being entertained by it? It's not as if those guys are coming back and they're like, okay, let me teach you, uh, you know, how to not get your guard passed because I mean, it just, you know, that doesn't apply to most people. So I think what we were teaching is a set of, movements and just philosophy that was geared towards professional athletes and it's resonated with a lot of people but I, in terms of general fitness and making people healthier and stronger and better uh, i just think your pool gets extremely narrow when that happens yes yeah, so the the information evolved and there was another shift when the educators evolved when the yeah. girls were born and you had to hand off the reins to trusted individuals so now how did that effectively change the information experience because the ethos yeah. of John Wellborn could not always be there. Well, um, the seminar was very personal to me. As you remember, there was a lot of anecdotes and a lot of personal information. And I taught all of the information, whether it be from the squat, the polls, all these other things, uh, the sprinting, the running, the change of direction, everything was taught from a very personal lens of like, hey, when I played in the NFL, when I was training, these are the things I did. So the seminar was very or very personal. And I remember when the kids were born and I was gonna send Luke and the team out on the road without me, uh, I realized very quickly that they could not go out. I mean, they just didn't, I wasn't gonna ask them to go out and do a, a parroted version of me, like, you know, stand on stilts and be like, hey, I'm John Walborn. And they used to do jokes like this. Uh, side note, uh, Ben Oliver called me yesterday. Uh, he sold CrossFit Balboa. Wow. Yeah, called me, he said, uh, not, did not sell it. So the value in Balboa was in the building in the CUP, which was the conditional use permit. That I mean, so I basically means, to, yeah. to operate a gym in Newport Beach, you had to do, there was traffic studies and this, and there was a lot of red tape that I had to go through. And I think the permit ended up cost me about 40 grand. And this is like 15 years ago, right? And uh, now it's obviously much more expensive to do all this and they don't hand them out very well because at the time when we started, it was before the rise of the micro gym. So like, oh, you want to do a health facility? Like it was like, they just didn't know. Now all of a sudden you have 15 years of everybody and their mother trying to open micro gyms. Yeah, a, a quick aside in DC, Gyms are connected to spas, and so there's a lot of politician shenanigans going on with spas. So I just recall the getting a gym permit near impossible yeah. in D.C. Yeah, so it was very impossible. Then they also do these um, traffic studies where they reach out to everybody in the neighborhood and tell them, like, this gym's coming in, increased traffic. At the time, people didn't know any better. Now, all of a sudden, they know, they show up, they complain. So a guy wanted to open a high-end training facility, kind of like an Instagrammer influence, this amazing kind of secret training place and, uh, you know, has a big backer and wanted to throw cash at it and basically came to Ben and said, hey, um, 
I can't do what I want to do through these channels, but I can purchase because the CUP lives with the building forever. Like once you've had it permitted, any facility could go in there. So he came in and pretty much wrote him a check and told him to basically take his members and tell him to fuck off and take your equipment and get the fuck out. And so Ben sold it um, and sold all the equipment. And uh, yeah, told my brothers yesterday. So my brother Eddie called me and was like, oh, well, it's over. Balboa's dead. So yeah. So kind of the ending of an era. R.I.P. R.I.P. So good times. Yeah. But I thought it was great that the guy didn't want the members, didn't want anything, just wanted the building, was able to write him a check to get him to walk down the road. So. Nice. Well, Ben was an integral part of the handoff to educators. Well, Ben was uh, working as, you know, assistant for me um, at CrossFit Balboa. And so, you know, with CrossFit football, as I would travel on the weekends and go teach us, Ben would kind of keep the home fires burning. He worked for Andy Stump down across at Coronado. Andy sold Coronado. And uh, Ben moved up to California at the time or up to Newport Beach because his girlfriend at the time, uh, little Jen, lived there. And he came to work for me and was kind of in that integral part so that when uh, Luke showed up to kind of help me with the kids, I mean, obviously help with the gym and the seminar when uh, I had to peel away with twins, uh, those guys kind of got together and tag teamed and sent them out on the road to go out and teach it. So Ben had been enough uh, around me enough to where he could teach the information. Luke, being a little more analytical, was a, um, you know, a good piece for that. But, you know, it took him a little while to find his voice and then he kind of adopted it and then went to actually running it and Ben became kind of the assistant. So it was kind of an interesting kind of Ben started out here. Went, and so it was an interesting shuffle. Yes. And uh, two years later evolved to opening it up uh, a call to arms to cross football pre-power athlete nation for hiring more. Yeah. So, yeah, looking for two people. You put out the call. Yeah. And you and Callie showed up. Yeah, two training partners from the East Coast. So 2012, got the opportunity. We famously yeah. interviewed in Philadelphia. It was an amazing cheesecake adventure. Cheesesteak. Cheesesteak adventure. Yeah, I, I mean, I appreciate the Freudian slip. I like cheesecake too. Who doesn't? Yeah. Um, but yeah, then led to opportunities to get out on the road. and Yeah. I mean, shit. you got a chance to travel the world. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, 24 international trips, six continents. And... Uh, 16 countries. It's pretty good. A lot of miles. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, no, it was great. You guys got to go on a lot of trips I did not get to go on. I didn't get to do Africa. I didn't get to do Seoul, Korea. So I got to do some other Asian stuff and, and obviously Australia, New Zealand and some of those places. But I know you guys had an epic adventure in South Africa that I missed. I think I think you guys went to South Africa and I had to teach like Ohio. Uh, man, I forget. Yeah. I'd have to look at the schedule. But. Yeah, you guys went and yeah, I had to teach that, but oh, man, it was, uh, it was a, it was a really interesting time. Uh, people were thirsty for knowledge. Um, you know, obviously the internet isn't what it is today with apps and all this. I mean, it was just kind of starting. So to be able to deliver information in person, which I don't think that you can really beat the in-person seminar for education. I mean, like I've, I I hear people talk and we do podcasts and this, but to show up and hear somebody in person, like, um, you know, we had uh, David Weck on the podcast and he's coming to town, I think in a couple of weeks to, to teach at on it for his Weck method. And he invited me to come down. Um, I'm interested to go hear his stuff in person um, because obviously we had him on the podcast. I heard the information. I've seen him online. Um, I have a lot of questions, you know, like we, we talked about with Ruiz 
you know, is the head over foot really something or is it just a byproduct of movement? And when you start looking at something like the byproduct and you start teaching the byproduct, does it keep, does it change the efficacy? So I'm, I'm always fascinated to hear if somebody is doing something different, I want to hear them in person. I want to see it presented. I want to see it with my own eyes and be absorbed into it more so than just like sitting in my mom's basement watching it. Yeah. And it becomes more than the, the information itself because you have to stand up and challenge it. Like I mentioned our opportunity to connect with people on the podcast, to wrestle with ideas. Now in a, a presenter's seat, one of the most valuable lessons that you gave me was the ethos, pathos, and logos. Yep. From how I think or thought back then, logos was everything. I just have to present the information and people will accept it. It's not true. That ain't true. No. So now the, the understanding and, and leaning on logos as my strength at the time still put me in a good position to present. Well, it does to some extent. Just, the problem is, is even if the information is good, they can't make an emotional connection unless you establish the ethos. That was why I worked so hard for you guys in your opening talks to like when on your introduction, this was your chance to create ethos. So I feel that at some point in every talk or like in a weekend, right? You can either establish ethos early or late. Um, I thought for you guys, it was better to have it done in the initial introduction and the talk and wanted you guys to kind of create your own, craft your own deal so that when the people hear you get up and speak, they already have like the residuals from what you've talked about. Um, you know, and, uh, so that was a, a big piece because I think as I remember, I remember the first time you presented, uh, you bombed. Of course. And as everybody it, should. Not only the first time. Well, but, and I remember you came back and you're like, what do I do? I'm like, I'm gonna keep putting you up there until you get better. You're either going to make a decision of like sucking or not sucking. And at some point you're going to not suck. And once you established the ethos and you actually changed your voice and started taking the information and making it your own instead of merely just trying to, you know, regurgitate my information, which I always thought was so dangerous at CrossFit level one, where, you know, they wrote the information, it was Glassman, and to hear people talk, it's really Glassmanian in, in uh, vernacular, and it's just Greg's words repeated. And I know they had to do that for standardization, but the problem becomes very dangerous when you have something that's that personal, and then people go out and teach it, like they have to make it personal to you. I mean, you went out and strength coached, you know, you worked with Roth. I mean, you, you know, you had traveled the world. You had the chops to teach it. You just had to let people know who you were and why you were out, why you were standing in front of them. You know, with the way CrossFit does it is they're wearing a red shirt. And instantly, because you're wearing this red shirt, you know, I'm a, I'm a red shirt. I've gone through this. I've, I've, you know, I've gone through the crucible. I wouldn't be standing here. So we didn't have the same crucible because we didn't have this like, uh, you know, fucking locking keys of all these different level one and this and this and this. So, I mean, you guys are standing up there and you're like, well, why are you guys teaching this information? Which I feel the gauntlet is more difficult that we went through than the level one to get there. But that's my bias. Why is that? Because it wasn't, it wasn't a defined execution in literature and, and certification process. So it was earning the respect. Yeah. So it was going and, you know, spending four months with Ruiz yeah. to and uh, having conversations that were weighty, well beyond, uh, I guess, the experience allowed. But then you were open to having these conversations, uh, which is great. And then, yeah. I mean, reading super training like it's the Bible yeah. and putting tabs in of, you know, Mel Sif 316 and just... 
Yeah, and, but and where that applies to sport because yeah, I was still coaching athletics. But that's where you were different. Um, you were obs- or you you always have been obsessed with the knowledge. You know, you look at it like you know, crack the bone, suck the marrow in the true sense of it. Whereas Luke wasn't interested in the information in terms of the granule. He was interested in like the teaching and like the the part that he needed to play. Uh, whereas, you know, he didn't really have a desire. I mean, he, he learned the strength conditioning cause he had to, cause he had to be able to answer questions and discuss it and present it. So he'd learned what he had to, but I don't ever know if he was ever romanced by the idea of elite human performance. The fact that there was something within the literature that could unlock athletic potential. Yeah. Well, uh, greatness. Great. Yeah. And, um, and I remember asking him and he's like, that's not what gets me. You know, he was into the systemization and the systemizing and the teaching and like the the nuts and the bolts of like the seminar and the presentation, whereas I was always obsessed with the information. You know, that's where I know you and I connected, where you could like we could read something and be like, "Ooh, that's really cool. We need to work that in," or "This is something to try." So, um, whereas you know, there's a reason that I always have weights in my garage. I'll always have a training. Like I'll always be fascinated, even if I, you know, decided to go do something else that didn't look like this. I would still lift weights. I would still train people, and I would still want to work with athletes just because I have a, a, an interest in making people better. Whereas I remember Luke being like, you know, if I went back to corporate America, I'd probably like maybe just go do some bodybuilding at a gym on occasion. I don't even know if I would lift weights. And, um, that was, uh, I mean, that was super interesting in that, uh, I training was always my vehicle, right? Like I, I if I hadn't started lifting weights, I, I played with dudes that the only way they weren't getting the NFL, but they got hit by a bus crossing the street. If I hadn't have, sat down and made a concerted effort to get bigger and stronger. And every time I went into the gym, I was going to get better. I wouldn't have got a chance to get to the NFL. I mean, I would have grown tall, but I just wouldn't have developed my skill set. And I had this undying fear of failure. And part of that fear of failure was backed or, you know, was backfilled and supported by just knowledge and trying to be around the best people and glean what I could. And, you know, every little piece and working with Roth was, um, it was great because, you know, if you ask Roth a question, He'll be like, you know, if I can turn to you and give you the most in-depth answers, like, why are we doing this? And I, I would never ask these questions, like, kind of like kids, be like, why are we doing this? I'd be like, dude, this is great. You know, like we were on the podcast, John could squat, he couldn't lunge. And I remember being like, why can't I lunge? And he's like, you're not strong on one leg. Neurologically, you can't pull through. And my next question is, well, if I can master this, will this make me better? And Rob's like, it could, theoretically it should, but we're going to have to go out and test it. You're going to have to get better at this and go out and see if you're better. You know, we like nothing exists in a vacuum. And I think Roth's, um, you know, gift of knowledge in that way, I think in his, you know, his fact finding and his leading in that and like, you know, like we can do all these things, but if it doesn't make you better, then, then how was it beneficial was uh, very impactful for me because all of a sudden I went back and there were things that I couldn't do that all of a sudden I could. And then I went out and played and I was exponentially a better player than I was before. Like, what did this guy do? I'm like, did all the shit this guy told me I couldn't do but never at the expense of who I was. And I imagine it created a, a, a bridge because you have to assess individuals very quickly yeah. uh, as you ran up from the huddle to the line. Yeah. So now this understanding, now I imagine that helped expand your envelope of observation to then go do your job better. Yeah. Which I then mean, played into coaching. Well, um, you know, football is a really interesting, especially offensive line play, right? You're, in, in layman's terms, I'm trying to dictate what somebody else does through force. 
So we're going to run the ball this way. I'm going to put my head and hands here, and I'm going to drive this individual this way to put my body between the ball carrier and the defender. Right? It's really simple. Like I'm going to dictate what happens. So now that guy, what he has to do is he has to fight against everything that I'm doing to try to break my technique and make a play and get between me and the ball carrier. So, uh, you know, the better I could be in terms of like stepping and head and head and being on one leg and accelerating through all these things became just, you know, weapons and tools to be able to do my job better. But I also had to be able to assess people really quickly in terms of what they could and couldn't do. And I knew if a guy would had a real first step, I was going to have to give myself more lead. If I knew that the guy didn't want to hit, I was going to have to go harder at him. So I was really focused on what does this guy not want to do? And then what can I do to force my will upon them? Um, same with athletes, like, um, you know, working with, uh, you know, Victor and the six blades guys today, um, you know, uh, watching Victor on his poles, realizing that, you know, obviously he straightens one leg before the other. And then he kind of bridges on that right leg because he's got weakness and it's imbalances. And so does it make sense to continue to have him pull? No, we'll just keep changing the poles. I mean, he's still going to pull, but I'll find something where we can create balance and throw a bunch of different stuff to try to create symmetry because I don't want him to get stuck in these asymmetrical patterns. Yes, and that's that's coaching experience. And then the, the beauty of the seminar and assessments and observations, because we had to walk in. You only had 16 hours. We couldn't force... Uh, sprints. We couldn't force heavy lifting on yeah. these people without performing yeah. assessments and observations. Well, that was uh, that was basically to save our own ass. So um, we, when we originally showed up, and I think this happened in Europe, uh, for the most part, when uh, the original seminars went out, we just showed up and it was a hundred miles and running. Like we get in, we do our little dynamic warm uh, warm up, a skips, b skips, uh, high knees, and we do our little dynamic movement prep, and then we go right in and start squatting. And we just cut people into height, like tall, medium, short, and we get people in. And all of a sudden, like fucking shit came off the rails. And we needed a way to almost triage is the word I think we used early on. How do we triage these people into groups where people have dysfunction? And uh, when we went to Europe, um, there was more dysfunction that we had seen. There was more, I mean, they, you had these. They're, they're three, yeah. four, five, seven years behind. Well, we had fire breathers. These mm -hmm. dudes that were like efficient, badass crossfitters that were ready to kill it. And then you had uh, uh, like civilian people. Uh, we called them NARPs. Yeah, NARPs, sorry. <laughs> uh, and I remember asking Roth and I'm like, dude, we need like a way to bring these people in and like basically assess and triage faster. And he was like, He's like, well, you know, what do you think? Like, we should, you know, shouldn't we do that in the uh, dynamic movement prep? And um, I was like, well, none of them can do the dynamic movement prep because, you know, A skips, B skips, all the high knees, all that other stuff. Like that comes from track and these people don't have a track background. Like what's even more basic? And we kind of got into it. And finally, I think we were sitting there and we're like, what about dead bugs? Because this is hilarious. Uh, when we first started with Roth, we did dead bugs, like dead bugged our life off. And then all of a sudden I came back in year two and like we did like a little bit of dead bug. And then year three, we never did dead bugs again. And I always ask him like, why don't we do dead bugs anymore? And he's like, lay down and do a dead bug. And I could go and I was fine on the dead bug. He's like, why do I have to keep doing movements that you're already good at? Like there's progressions in this thing. Mm -hmm. Now, if you couldn't dead bug two years ago, we'd still be doing them, but you already mastered it. And it's not like you cannot not dead bug. I mean, we didn't do, you know, we, we would only do dead bugs at the seminars and we still kill it. So that piece of, uh, of like 
hey, should we go back to doing dead bugs really popped into the seminar and it became this, you know, we've talked about the three prong attack that you got to, you know, break somebody down. You got to share something and then well, you have to teach there. them something. Um, but the dead bug became a really cool piece of breaking people down first because one, we knew they couldn't do it. Two, they uh, would get all really emotional. And then three, they weren't moving. So then we could move around and it allowed me to triage people, see hamstring, shoulder, neck, dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, um, you know, where injuries were. And so we could almost bring a little notebook and be like, look, at, there's your name, write it down. Um, you know, asymmetry in the shoulders has got a hamstring problem. We got this and this, you know, we had a guy lay down to do dead bugs and as his pant leg fall up, we figure out he had an artificial leg that he didn't tell us about. And thank God we did dead bugs. That was in Chicago. So, um, the dead bug became our chance to assess people without them moving. Cause it's hard to think about this. If we set up and we do a dynamic movement prep and you're sprinting and high knees and this, and you're moving away from me and there's a whole bunch of people, it's really hard to assess people. I can focus on one dude, but I can't see the group. You put them on the ground in a dead bug situation, start them in dead bug home. And then all of a sudden take them through. I can walk around and assess everybody within three minutes. So really the dead bug assessment, um, became just a piece of us triaging and figuring out who could do what and how we had to split them into groups and more importantly, who we had to watch because, um, man, like those early days, it was like fucking like, you know, like an aid station. People were just imploding because one, they had never been, I mean, they had a, a life of submaximal efforts and now we're asking them to do maximal efforts. Yes. And they never had uh, a coach, and I mean that in the, the utmost respect for, for you and Ruiz in that first experience. That's the first time you had somebody with high expectations and them as an athlete and even me and myself when I was attending could not, could not execute and deliver. So despite of my effort, I was not meeting the standard, the expectation of execution. So going back to our beginning with execution, why it's so important. But at the same time, it's okay to fail. This is where you are today. And then we're also giving you the corrective exercise, which will lead to the promised land. Sure. Uh, what, what I appreciate about the assessment, over 100 seminars, we're talking over 1,000, 1,500 athletes. So walking in, assessing, and then adjusting the course or the movement or the stress accordingly. And then as a collegiate strength and conditioning coach, I'm limited by my team. See, I got two, three, four, six teams. Maybe I'm working with a hundred to 200 athletes a year. I don't get an opportunity to assess except maybe once a semester. So now I'm thrown all over the world as a coach. I've assessed more people than coaches do in a 20 year career sure. within, you know, a, a four year span from 2013 to 17. Uh, the, accelerated adaptation of coaching that we experienced from having worked with that many athletes in real time. And, you know, let's, let's say you think you're at a CrossFit gym and you know, the same 80 people come in every weekend. Maybe there's some different this. We got to see anywhere from 25 to 50 different people every weekend. That first year I taught 36 seminars. Yeah. I mean, and, it, and it was, it, it was unbelievable. So you get the chance to see limitations in people as individuals and also deficiencies of programs. Mm -hmm. You could tell right away who was the only thing they were doing was the a CrossFit style program. Then you could see, oh, people had track background or mm -hmm. people without, without commenting, 
like I always brought into the seminars, like uh, assessments, any injuries we always ask, and then they lie to you yeah. and you could see it. Yeah. So athletes will lie to you. Movement never will. Yep. So the beauty of the assessment and when we got into the programming lecture, without even knowing people's history, you could call out the holes that you saw mm -hmm. to help solidify the value of the program. So execution and programming, that 16 hours was so valuable for seeing the connection. And now we get thousands of athletes online through Train Heroic where we can anticipate where they will fail yeah. and then put in warm-ups and accessory movement to help solidify those holes that we saw over X amount of years with the seminar. So yeah. we can anticipate failure through programming and then just fine-tune coaching movement virtually. Power Athlete Nation, we know your health and wellness are a priority. That's why we partnered with Stay Classy Meats. They are dedicated to connecting you with the finest responsibly raised meats on the planet. Their direct partnerships with farmers and ranchers mean they can deliver to you nationwide. They're more than a meat company. They're a network of athletes and farmers committed to superior nutrition. Stay Classy works with producers like R.C. Carter, whose regenerative agricultural practices result in beef that's packed with 75% more essential amino acids, phytonutrients, and a perfect blend of omega-3-6 ratio. Experience a difference with their 10-pound ground beef or 15-pound assorted meat subscription box, specially branded as the Stay Classy Power Athlete Box. Click on the link and order today with the promo code POWERATHLETE, all one word. Join us in securing your health and food supply chain. Stay Classy Meats, superior nutrition, naturally. It's time to step up your game. Stay classy with us irreplicable i know we talked about this offline but irreplicable experience in this field yeah no it's impossible to replicate i i like almost look back on it like a different lifetime i mean you know in terms of coaching and assessing and understanding movement and you know the psychology of discomfort and like you know people shying away and being able to see these little nuances in real time um i don't know if I would have had that fine-tuned ability if we hadn't have done it. And I remember actually it was Kelly Starrett uh, was the one that pointed it out. And he goes, remember, there probably will never be coaches again that will ever have that many people. I mean, Kelly would go teach a Saturday and a Sunday for 50 different people. Mm -hmm. So in a weekend, he would go work with 100 athletes. And he did that, you know, same deal, 30, 40 seminars every weekend or uh, every weekend in a year and travel the world similar to we did. And we just got to see things in real time. Now, what was cool was he got them put through his mobility seminar. We got to see people actually sprint and run and change direction. So he got to see from like, a, a you know, limitations within, you know, joints and fascia and, and control. I mean, he got to see the people within his model. Mm -hmm. We did the exact same, but our model was, uh, I believe a little bit better in that we, we used load both uh, dynamic sprinting, change of direction, and lifting weights to challenge posture and position, see where people fell apart. Got to stress to progress. So the this leads us to to pathos, and as you brought up, the three prong approach. And this yep. this took me, and I remember the moment that it finally clicked for me uh, to understand this pathos because I was passionate, but I was not able to express the passion. So while I could feel it. I was not able to make the the connection with the audience in the moment that I 
was paired up with Bobby Goodfellow. And like, I just felt a seminar. It was, 40, Where was this? 40 people in DC. Okay. And they, they needed a hero. They needed the birthday party because yeah. like, I don't know what was up with Bobby at the time, but just, he was the birthday party sure. paired with me, the science yeah. class. Well, what, what, what did Glassman say? It's got to be a balance of physics and birthday party or uh, too much physics and not enough birthday party, good time. Uh, people are, are, are not, won't learn if it's, yeah. So he, that, that was a Glassmanian reference. You got to have a balance of birthday party and physics class. Yeah. So it was just a moment that the birthday party was not fun. And I had to flip a switch like over the top and just essentially be both. And from that moment on, I, man, I'd have to do some math, but maybe 30 seminars solo. And that, uh, that couldn't, I didn't envision that happening right away, but eventually got to that point. But through this, this pathos and true expression, but it goes back to the three prong approach that you were alluding to. Yeah. That three prong approach. Um, it's dude, it's, it's, uh, it's dangerous. Once you understand how to use it in, uh, in, you know, the initial deals coming in and breaking people down, creating some you know, negative emotion, putting them into a dead bug, putting them into something, allowing them to get to an emotional state and then bring them back, sharing something. I too sucked at dead bugs. Now teaching them how to get better at a dead bug and really just that three prong attack um, is really just the foundation and how we were able to convert people so quickly. Um, the, without putting them into that emotional state early on, you don't get the buy-in. So you got to come down and I know it's hard. You got to kick them in the teeth. If you show them too much quarter, too much kindness early on, they're going to run amok on you. And we saw that because, uh, we didn't always use the three prong attack and the three prong attack ended up working its way in very, very quickly. And I knew, I mean, I remember I was teaching a seminar with Callie in Seattle and uh, we went for a three-prong attack, and one of the guys there was not happy about Kelly teaching the seminar and did not want to basically be coached by a woman, which seems so crazy to me. Like, she, And I remember telling the guy, hey, can we go talk outside? And I was like, empty your fucking cup. And he's like, I don't want to be coached. But I'm like, dude, I wouldn't have brought her here unless she was switched on. Right. She knows this whole deal. And I know Callie, you know, was, uh, was pretty pissed. And, uh, you know, like I was like, Hey dude, let me talk to this guy. And, um, you know, I know she was even like, you shouldn't have to do that. I'm like, yeah, but I do at some point if, you know, cause not everybody has the wherewithal to be able to be coached by everybody and to realize that like, you know, the fact that she's with me and she's coaching for me means that she's a switched on coach. And Callie was a hell of a coach. Uh, I thought, uh, her stage presence and her demeanor and the way she spoke and everything that she did was top notch and one of the best I've seen. And, um, you know, and I even told her that I'm like, you know, uh, but occasionally you need some support. You're going to need somebody to come in and hammer and that dude wasn't respecting you. So it's my job to beat him up and, uh, took him outside, empty your cup, fucking broke him down a little bit, let him go back in there. And then I just fucking hammered him the whole weekend. Um, but there's, uh, an interesting, there's an interesting skill in terms of coming into those situations and managing the expectations of that many people and then making sure that everybody gets their moment. You know, we go back to the almost famous where it's like, I find the one guy not getting off and I get him off and you can write that, you know, the, uh, camera crow. I mean, that piece of like remembering people are, are paying for this. They're showing up for the education, but they're also showing up for an experience. Mm-hmm. And if you're just giving them bombarding education and we used to get the feedback, it was great. I don't remember what I learned. 
So that's where we started cutting out stuff and trying to, you know, give people a little more rest time and a little bit more interaction and uh, a little more antidote and a little more story. So I think you have to be able to educate people, but they have to have the experience. They have to go on a journey and have to feel that they're part of something bigger than them. Yeah. Which isn't easy because 40 people have different coaching backgrounds, education experiences, different learning velocity velocities. So it, it was, it was never easy, but it was always fun. Mm-hmm. And I think that helped with the pathos is the continuous challenge of, I don't know who's going to show up until we get there. Cause yeah. we got very limited information about the group. We can do a whole different so, podcast on that. So but. Uh, if anybody's not catching the drift, CrossFit absolutely hated us. Um, you know, so what, and I actually talked about this on uh, cleared hot and Andy Stump's podcast. Um, cause he asked, you know, when did CrossFit football become the bastard stepchild? And I'm like, I know exactly what it was. Um, Rob had the black box deal. He peeled out from CrossFit and he and Glassman got into a nasty fight. Rob and I were involved in the food company, Paleo Brands and Glassman called up and said, Hey, if you, um, basically stick a dagger in Rob's back, I'll, you know, make sure that CrossFit football is golden and, you know, the velvet gates will open and money will rain down from the heavens. And I've always been, uh, tried to be a loyal person, even to a fault. And I, I told him like, you know, Rob's a good friend of mine and I'm going to stab a friend in the back. And, um, you know, if that's what you want to do, then let me know. And, uh, you know, last thing I'm going to do is screw a friend over. And, uh, the fact that he asked me kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. So at that point, cross the football came off the main page and we proceeded to be treated with almost like, like we were lepers. Um, you know, in all the years that we taught, they had hundreds of hours of us in terms of our content and seminars, they put out two videos, one of you teaching a floor press and another one of Ben, uh, basically taking liberties on a lecture that was never part of the seminar. Um, it was something that I anecdotally talked about a story with, uh, Dr. Romanoff and I talking about the big monkey, small monkey theory that the, the way it goes was, I guess in Russia, they did a study where they found a whole bunch of monkeys and they observed these monkeys. Some of the monkeys played like 24 hours a day. You know, they swung, they fought, they battled, they ate, they did this and they lay down for a little. And then they had other monkeys that only moved like an hour a day and they rested and they just kind of were slow. So what they did is they took the monkeys that moved 24 hours a day and locked them in a cage for, you know, 24 hours and then let them out for an hour. And then they took the monkeys that only like to move for an hour a day. They forced them to keep moving for hours upon hours, you know, to get their food and do everything. And by the end, uh, the monkeys that were used to moving when they got out of the cages, they just like beat each other to death. And then the other monkeys that didn't like to move, that were forced to move, just laid down and died. So their theory was that, and the way they, uh, he related it to athletes is that there's certain athletes that can handle a lot more volume than other athletes. Mm -hmm. And that when you're programming, you have to be able to take into account whether your athlete's a big monkey or a small monkey. So Dr. Romanoff and I had this discussion um, at like a breakfast place, coffee shop in San Diego. Um, and that and a few other conversations that were extremely impactful for me at the time. Uh, the one about, um, you know, the fastest athletes in the world ran the fastest in training and the strongest athletes lift the heaviest weights. You know, uh, agnostic of sets and reps and volume. It's just the fastest people are the fastest all the time. And the strongest people always lift the heaviest weights. So however that happens. But so the small monkey thing, I came back and told uh, you guys, I think it was Ben and Luke and the guys, I was like, Hey, I heard this great story from Romanoff and I kind of related it. And I think I tried it in one of the seminars. Somebody asked me a question about volume and intensity. And I basically related, Hey, um, 
it wasn't part of the seminar. It was just a response that I gave in a Q&A. Ben decides to include that in the programming talk mm-hmm. and CrossFit uh, recorded it and put it out because it was really poorly done. It actually bombed and uh, they posted it out. And then Romanoff calls me and is like, you know, pissed off. Like, why are you teaching? You know, I told you that antidote in passing. Like, why are you teaching it now? And I was like, well, first of all, I told the guys the story. Ben put it into the seminar uh, without authorization and taught off script. And, uh, and CrossFit recorded it. And they posted it because it was poorly done. It was kind of like when you did the floor press deal. Um, and pick the longest arm yeah. individual in the audience. Training solo, you just pull somebody in as yeah. demo. Uh, and I had a real bad habit going back to, to teacher and lecturer, just lecturing and not watching and observing the athlete. So I was saying the appropriate things. However, uh, now understanding different learning velocities and where meeting, where people, where they, uh, meeting people, where they learn sure. more of a model representation, the less experience they have in body awareness, yeah. they're going to do what they see. Monkey see monkey do to pull sure. that in. And just lack of experience. I was yeah. saying the right things if you just listen, but but you the, watch. Yeah, yeah, the guy, I remember he had real long humorous head. George Nutter. And yeah. he was like, he was just, a, you know, and the reason we taught the floor press was uh, most CrossFit gyms didn't have benches. We had to teach, you know, one of our uh, different planes of motion is always going to be a horizontal press. And so we had to teach the horizontal press. They didn't have uh, enough benches, so we went to the floor press, which actually turned out to be a much better movement because we could coach the bottom of the movement. As they brought the bar down, we could get them to pause, work on getting a vertical forearm, work on their wrist, and then teach them to drive. Um, The interesting part about the floor press is you can get them to pause and we can teach a better bar path. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, For a long time, uh, I was always working on trying to create the shortest path possible. So I would bring the bar down and then drive it, almost push it away towards, um, my stomach, you know, using a lot of tricep. And as time evolved and I looked at more and more bench, I realized that the strongest benchers kind of almost had a C motion more uh-huh. so than like a pushing away. They were actually driving it back and, uh, it, you know, it became easier to teach, um, and better path. Pl- and, yes. and, and the other thing too was uh, pinching the shoulder blades. So originally, what I had people do is really retract hard and then walk their shoulders back, so we could create a shoulder shorter lever. Um, and then after we had Fred Hatfield on the podcast, and he talked about developing a bench where that the scapulas could move, mm-hmm. that pinning the scapulas destroys the shoulder. When I changed that piece, so it was really good in the floor that you could actually feel the tactile cue of the ground. And we could coach the bottom and they couldn't bounce. And if they did, they were bouncing the weight on their wrists and on their elbows and not on their sternum. And a self-correcting yeah. movement because that hurts. Oh, yeah. A lot of a lot of things I want to note here. So the value uh, in terms of teaching, like Romanov gave to you the, the antidote. So the power of story and reference. And then your ability to make a connection back to your college roommate yeah. who was a small monkey. So in terms of being a, a, a teacher and then applying it and creating into programming, you got to lean on your experience sure. or the experience of others. Like I would learn that lesson from you and then uh, look for it with any athlete I'd be coaching. Yeah. So using antidote and story to help solidify a point because it's easier for an individual to remember that rather than citing some reference from super training or science practice. And 
the valuable lesson of staying in your wheelhouse as Mm -hmm. a presenter. It is real easy to go down a wormhole after watching John do it with ease and then get completely lost. So knowing, okay, staying in my wheelhouse, saving questions for the end that could potentially derail and lead down those wormholes. And uh, yeah, just a a hard-fought lesson to stay in your wheelhouse that takes a lot of presenting and teaching reps. Yeah. Stay in your wheelhouse. Don't get too far out of your wheelhouse. Um, I would read, and I still read a lot of stuff. Um, you know, I mean, we obviously read strength and conditioning. I read politics, um, you know, uh, strength theory, space travel, Mars missions, like Al- almond watering patterns. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, like, um, how much water it takes to, and well, actually I know that from, uh, from Steve, I was Steve Urosic, Urosic Farms. You know, they are largest uh, growers of almonds. And so I was fascinated by how much water it takes to actually grow an almond. And then when you look at California's water woes, it's a huge issue because California does not collect rainwater. When you see water in California come off of a roof or whatever, it goes into a storm drain, which goes into the ocean. So they don't have uh, enough aquifers or reservoirs or everything to collect it. So most of the rainwater just goes in the ocean. Whereas here in Texas, uh, they have to collect the rainwater because the ground is so hard that it only absorbs like two inches of water and then just basically turns into a fucking slip and slide. Slide, slide. Yeah. So, um, but like stuff like that, like I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated by, um, not like architecture, like we were talking about like tensegrity today. Um, you know, uh, well, form is, follows function. Yeah. The not idea a strength of, and conditioning term. Well, even though they brought it into strength and conditioning and they try to relate tensegrity to like ligaments, tendons, bones, and muscles and that the spine, I just don't see it. Like I, I keep hearing it used. Um, but the way I understand it from architecture is uh, using tension and compression for unsupported, you know, structures like domes, for example, but like they're talking about like the spine and that was even David Wex deal talking about the like spinal engine tensegrity kind of fits within that. So, uh, it's become the new strength and conditioning term when like, Oh, it's destroying the tensegrity of, a of, of these joints. I'm like, well, you could argue it's destroying the tensegrity of the profession. That's true. You can go with that one. But um, being able to pull different information. And the other thing I ran into, especially with the nutrition talk, is um, I would get bored teaching the same shit. And, you know, I know for you guys, um, you guys talk. Well, if it's not in our wheelhouse, stick to the script. Yeah. Stick, stick to the script. Uh, whereas, you know, I was allowed to just fucking go off and go as far off the rails as I wanted because at the end of the day, nobody's going to bitch at me about it. Uh, that's not true. Luke did bitch at me quite often. The about it. most memorable and coincidentally was the uh, weekend. I came out to power athlete that was also hosting a seminar and we were in the back just scheming vertical integration on a whiteboard. <laughs> and then you had to take a time out to come give the nutrition talk for three hours. Yeah, I was good at that. And I mean, and even uh, Eric from CrossFit headquarters had compliments on where like, you went. He's like, I've never seen back. anybody tie this thing up as well as you did. He's like, you went so far off the rails the whole time. I'm thinking, how do I tie this up? Well, that I would argue, and I've heard comedians speak about this practice and exercise. And then you've spoken about the same exercise within jujitsu of starting in the most difficult position and working your way back. Yeah. Right. A, a comedy or a show writer. Let's end this cliffhanger season in the most difficult spot so we can challenge ourselves in the writing room to come to a, a conclusion and the hero wins. Uh, so that's that's not common practice uh, across different enterprises. 
And then understanding, dude, we've said the same thing over and over for you since 2009 to 2017 that ended. I understand the need to get creative. Yeah. Um, another note, the, the best practice, right? John had eons of experience in the weight room, but all of a sudden now we had to teach and you're still making discoveries for the best practice of programming in the, the garage gym setting, if you will. So making the adjustment to floor press from the bench press understanding, and then that unlocking, oh, actually this makes me think about and then make more connections. So that effectively put an awesome, you in an awesome position to now programming for limitations yeah. within the equipment. So the teaching led to success in the programming. It's not just this one magic way on a program. Okay. Now I understand the person I can put myself in their shoes or their gym training alone and make the necessary adjustments. Sure. And then we saw the epitome of that in the third monkey and having yeah. a lot of fun getting creative within a $50 home Depot gym. Yeah. No, these are, um, it, uh, it was an amazing time and it was a lot of fun. Uh, to be able to go out and have a theory on strength and conditioning and have this background and being used as a professional athlete and then be able to go out and try to teach it to people that didn't have this background and then to be able to try to convey their message and make, you know, better people out of it. Um, I, you know, it almost reminded me the analogy I gave was like, it was like a burning building and we were just running in and pulling people out and trying to give them the gift of strength, the gift of performance, understanding, you know, rotation and, you know, frontal and sagittal planes. And just understanding the model of, you know, primal movements and volume and intensity and uh, being able to sprint and run and being able to rinse and repeat and then be able to take athletes on this journey. So it was, uh, it, um, those were good days, uh, you know, and then obviously we always had this desire to put a whole bunch of information online ahead of time so that one of my big pet peeves was people would show up to the seminar highly deficient in basic information. Like when we have to start teaching about proximal and distal and muscle contractions and really just some basic pieces, uh, I always felt that we could have had much more rich conversations if people just had done the work on the front side. Mm -hmm. So with the methodology, what we were really looking to do was just give people a base of strength conditioning so that when they showed up to the seminar, we could have more intelligent, faster, more dynamic conversations. Yes. And uh, to steal a Ron McKeefery quote, and that's it's in the book, getting people to the position that they can learn. So it, it began as the foundation, uh, a level one for us to then project, uh, like send a coach to the moon. Like here's this base level of knowledge, similar to what was taught in the book, a base level of strength, which then is the platform for what athleticism is built. Let's establish a base level of knowledge for now you to set up to coach individuals specific needs that they uh that you can start to see and understand and really send an athlete down a path they wouldn't get otherwise mm -hmm. um which there was a lot from the seminar that was left on the cutting room floor that we valued which then the online course at your own pace allowed us to bring back into the fold sure which then i mean leads us to the point we are now sure where yeah. we had a vision of level one, two, yeah. and now taking the, the cutting room floor things from level one and then re, I won't say rewriting, but uh, solidifying the methodology as a whole 
Yeah. It's available online at powerathletehq.com forward slash academy. Yeah, the, uh, you know, we, we have this kind of multi-prong approach, um, you know, with different steps. And what I realized is that steps two and three for the block, you know, for those things were more about, you know, our own hubris and our own desire for what we thought people needed. Um, you know, at the end of the day, people need like a solid rubric to train from. And really the second, the third part is you taking an athlete on that journey yourself. Um, you know, that's to me, when I look at like the advanced of like the block one, you know, or the block network, it's, um, not necessarily like us educating or giving you more. It's who you're able to take on this journey. To me, those are more about like, here, I've helped an athlete get a scholarship. I've helped this guy do this and this, um, you know, whenever I get tagged in, um, you know, Stephanie, uh, just tag me in something where one of our athletes got a, uh, got a scholarship. So it's almost like the second level of this thing is about taking an athlete on a journey that they cannot take themselves. You know, um, uh, I wish I could say that, you know, Victor wasn't a world champ before he met us, but, you know, he was in a position where, you know, injuries and some of the limitations that he had dealt with needed to be assessed so that he could go on and compete at the highest level. So being able to take him on that journey, he came in today with, um, you know, it was double gold from, uh, you know, pans or from uh, Brazilian nationals, and then he's going to worlds next month. I mean, so to be able to, you know, fix some of the holes and some of the problems, you know, and then to be able to continue to evolve and get him ready. He was supposed to have a fight with uh, Gordon Ryan here in about six, seven weeks, but that ended up not happening. Uh, Gordon ended up, he's got stomach issues and now it's kind of manifesting into the throat and he just can't get healthy. So, um, they were inked, canceled the fight. So he's going to go to worlds out in Long Beach next at the end of the month. So getting him ready for that and prepping these guys for, you know, what they have going. So, um, you know, taking athletes like a guy like Arash who was 292 and now he's 246 and is stronger and better than he's ever been competing at a higher level or, you know, Philippe trying to get him to be the best in the world at that heavyweight, which is by far the most competitive. So, you know, these guys are already pretty talented, but giving them the gift of strength, teaching them the mobility piece and like really just the ability to generate force in these different ranges of motion. You know, I've never been, mobility is an interesting piece. I like to use it more because I think about being, you know, active range of motion, being strong within these different positions. And the only way we, we get there is by training them and forcing them into these positions. Yes, and continuing to to learn from the observations to then guide the programming, which we're seeing in the the evolution Dragon Slayer. Yeah. Uh, so with the the launch of the the online course, that was a model of us on the road and seeing the limitations within the industry. Yes. Focused on a, uh, a single guiding light of application. Yes. Let's teach you to go out and apply to your athletes. And now we've had coaches come to us and test. So we get to see the value of the education that we're putting out and identifying, and this is the, the evolution of, and finding limitations in the product and the education and the course we're putting out, testing them. And then now we're in a position where we solidified the limitations or misinterpretations or misapplications of the information and having this this 2.0 of the course so that that's a cool thing as well is having over 150 people here that we certified maybe maybe 200 people tested i'd have to get you the number sean but 150 uh certified coaches in the methodology which is awesome and then still finding gaps that we can fill 
to then take them to the next level. Sure. Um, so, I mean, not a lot of coaches can, can say that where maybe they have their ideas, their thoughts, their methods, but then how were they tested? Was it my athletes in house or was it, I taught you this, I gave you the opportunity to apply this. And then how did you, how did your athletes perform? So a reverberation, it's not just the inside in house. It's the, the impact of the people that we connect it with. Yeah, no, I mean, um, you know, the mark of a person isn't necessarily on what you do. It's how you impact those around you. You know, they say a person dies twice the day you die. And when the last person that knows your name dies. So to be able to create something that creates such a big splash and a rippling effect that has the potential to go on and influence people for many years has always been a desire of mine. And as you said, you need to kind of get into this, um, you know, my daughters are almost 12, my little boy seven, you know, we've been doing this a number of years looking at it and being like, you know, how do I continue to influence people in a positive way? How do I continue to, you know, build upon a legacy? I mean, for a long time, we, you know, taught it on the back of a CrossFit football and a power athlete and this idea of, you know, battling the bullshit and, you know, 700 plus uh, podcasts, you know, hopefully with a very unique message of, you know, consistent, like providing good information, putting a spotlight on people that are doing amazing things. And um, the one thing that I think we've done very well is consistency. I think that, you know, people can do it for a year, for two years, for three years, but can you do it for a decade and be this consistent within the branding and the messaging? So I think the longevity piece has always been fascinating. Um, uh, you know, the, at my core, um, you know, the idea of being able to provide people as much information as they need, but not so much that it creates paralysis. I felt like that happened all too much in college and everywhere else. I mean, in the NFL, especially where these coaches would just start throwing out and vomiting information and players would get paralysis because analysis is paralysis, right? Uh, where I always had a pretty good information of, or sorry, ability to listen to all the information and be able to glean out what was most important and what I needed to know. You know, like think about the, give me a playbook. What I did is I just grouped everything into into different parts. Like, is this inside, outside zone? What are these run schemes? Five, seven-step drops, three-step drops? What does it look like? And so I just categorized everything. And as soon as I would hear the number, I would know what I needed to do. And it was easier to recall information. But I think people just looked at it like the phone book. Whereas I looked at it like chapters. And, you know, strength conditioning is the same way. And, you know, I had to, you know, create or even, you know, have it created where, you know, you look at these seven primal movements and everything is about challenging posture and position through those seven different movements and then using different implements and different ways. And, you know, all this, I mean, step, squat, lunge, push and pull, vertical, horizontal, rinse and repeat, you know, then you add frontal transverse and sagittal planes. Now all of a sudden, you know, with the element of working with these jujitsu guys, now all of a sudden we're like taking them from the standing model onto their backs up in this. So it's almost created this, like I was thinking like these three axes of rotation, right? X, Y, and Z with seven primals, but then also flipping it on its side upside down at different angles. So it's almost turned into this like 360 or, model orientation. Yeah. Planes of motion plus now orientation versus yeah. on your feet, similar realm in the, the space of swimming. Sure. So I get to experience with that, uh, with Raph, I'd have to dig back into that stuff, but the, uh, instead of the water fighting back at you, it's another man. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, it's really fascinating. So I didn't realize 
that limitations and flexibility um, become like huge fucking problems. So, uh, you know, with, with whether it be sport, whether it be football, basketball, jujitsu, fighting, boxing, whatever it is, um, putting your position, putting your opponent into a position where he's at disadvantage is always the key for everything. So if I'm playing offensive line and I'm playing, you know, and there's a defense alignment here and I'm an offensive lineman and I zone, I know that if he's, you know, playing two thirds inside out, you know, his inside eyes on my outside eye, that I have to take a step big enough to be able to cover him up and actually get an angle. But I also know that he's going to step this way too. So now I have to step at just the right angle because too much he's going to shoot inside. Not enough, he's going to cross face me. And then I have to drive my head and I have to effectively dictate my will upon him. You know, we're doing this from our feed. I mean, it's pad level. There's a bunch of key factors. But what's been fascinating, and same thing in, in um in boxing, right? So I'm going to cut a guy off in a ring, play, you know, same thing, two thirds inside out, first meaningful touch. Um, you know, I'm anticipating, I know that this guy's a big, you know, uh, you know, likes a lot of hooks in this. I mean, being able to, to play against an opponent, but when you get in this jujitsu thing, what's really fascinating is guys are standing, guys are on their side, you're in coyote guard, you're on your back, you're here, you're turtle. So, I mean, you're moving in all these different, uh, positions and you're, basically trying to react to what somebody's giving you who has an infinite number of positions. So it's just become fascinating. And what I found is that there's certain limitations that people have that I know that if I can put them into that position, they're fucked. I'll just give you an example, hip uh, hip mobility. We were working on stack pass, which is if somebody's laying on their back, what you end up doing, and my trick is I throw, I, I give people what's called a triangle. So you basically, other than Philippe, you don't want to triangle you. But if my shoulders are square and you go for the triangle, I can effectively, you can't triangle me. But what I can do is I can hook your leg, come forward, grab. Then I can take this arm, pull it through. And now all of a sudden one leg is up and I can push one leg down. And we call it a staple where I put my knee on your leg and I basically staple it to the ground. So now one leg is up and one leg is stapled. And then I reach underneath and I grab and I roll you forward with this leg in position. Now, what's amazing is if you do not have stripper-like hip flexibility, you can't do it. You can't put one leg here and drop one leg. But because we've been doing dead bugs for so many years, and I have good hip flexibility and mobility, it's fine for me. The other thing too is guys, as they age, they tend to get thick in the middle. And a lot of people don't do as much rotation or as much transverse or as much med ball and a lot of the movements that we do. So all of a sudden you put me in that position and now all of a sudden I have to use this flexibility. For me, it's no problem to the point where I have enough flexibility where I actually, actually can escape if somebody has me in a stack pass. Now, when I stack pass people, the minute that I staple and I lift them, they tap because they just don't have the hip mobility or the flexibility or the strength in those positions to survive it. And you can see the change on their face and it's extremely... Uh, dangerous. You know, if you're stacking somebody, especially a dude over 40 who doesn't have hip mobility and is a little thicker through the middle, I mean, dude, they'll tap even before you even submit them just from the pressure of it. So what's been fascinating with jujitsu is as I started doing it and working with, you know, Andy made a good point when I was on Stump's podcast, like you're playing in really deep waters, rolling with, uh, you know, with Shanji and you know victor and philippe and the guys at six blades i mean they are legitimately some of the best dudes in the world at this point and shanji probably one of the best to ever do it uh you know hodger gracie's considered like the best ever and he lost like three times or five times and three to, or two or three of them were to shanji so uh he's a uh, like 
I mean, I don't even know how to say it, like an idiot savant. He's, so he's not an idiot, but he's a savant for jujitsu and teaching it and, and that. And the fact that we get to roll with him is really uh, pretty amazing. And he coaches me every time I go. So uh, having somebody with that level of knowledge and then also, um, you know, seeing the limitations of people like you're on your back, here it is. It really just opened up a lot for me in terms of limitations and especially rolling with all these guys and seeing what they can and can't do. So it allowed me to go back into the lab, develop a training system, which is Dragon Slayer, apply it to these guys. And now all of a sudden what was neat was, and I'm such a dork using the word neat. Andy was like, I can't believe you were neat. I'm like, well, it's either neat or rad. Neato. Yeah, it was really rad uh, to roll with those guys and see what they could and couldn't do, put them into the training model, and now to see what they can do and then go back and see them fix the limitations that they had before. Yes. And, and the expansion of the methodology is in line with that because we were focused on application still, but now seeing movement. So have a assessment tools within that so we can put you in a position to see movement, teach movement, and then coach movement. And, draw a line in the sand and differentiate teaching and coaching common practice out there. Teaching is coaching. Coaching yeah. is negative. So now imagine uh, I'll use uh, any jujitsu coach as an example. Shani, he understands this whole expanse of it, Yeah. but now he can teach you that, but you need a coach. So he teaches you a movement and then a coach gives you the one, two directions that you need. So he's got this expanse of knowledge but now each class, he teaches you a segment or more than one, but a movement. And then when you get the opportunity to go live, he gives you one, two cues, directions and feedback yeah. based off your execution. Yeah. What, uh, what people don't do and kind of bugs me a little bit in JITS is um, we spend the entire class drilling one thing. So when I go into the, you know, we go into some free rolls or open mat or just some sparring at the end, I fight to use what we learned during the class. Uh-huh. So it's always amazing when we get in and like people are just like get into survival and they just start, you know, doing what they do. Um, I, like my whole deal is uh, if I learn it, I need to crystallize it and I need to, you know, cause I don't get a chance to roll every single day. Um, so if I go learn something, I need to learn it and I need to use it. Um, but what's really nice for a guy like Shanji, who's, you know, like, I mean, dude, probably has more time, I mean, geez, I mean, as a black belt, I mean, just a, a phenomenal teacher and one of the best guys to ever do it. Um, he has a really interesting eye, especially for me being like, hey, um, you have a unique skill set. Um, here is how I help you develop your skill set, which is the difference between just an instructor and a coach. Yes. Um, so the one thing that I appreciate for him is he's been very good about whether it be Victor or Philippe or those guys like here is what your skill set is. Here's what you do really well. Now let me show you how to enhance your ability. And, um, you know, he made a good point to me. He's like, you know, your, um, uh, your ability to like go hard and fast and move and like the switch. He's like, uh, like to the point where like, I need you to teach. I almost need to teach you to not do that so that we can develop all the other skills because when you need that, you have that. So whereas other people, I almost have to teach them to go. Yeah. So, so he's got that eye and then gives you feedback. Yeah. So within the, the methodology, we introduced this because we found a limitation in our previous iteration in that 
we were only having coaches teach movement, but now it's taking a step back, teaching, and then seeing movement where proficiency exists and where limitation exists. And we can anticipate that sure. based off how much we've seen and now how to communicate and give feedback so that you start to close that loop. So introducing that into it and expanding upon the life cycle of an athlete with the previous iteration simply focused on the, the novice, the amateur now expanding that, that envelope into a competitive window where we guide the athlete and the coach from novice into an intermediate athlete, call it a, a higher level high school into collegiate into getting ready for the pros. Um, and what's cool and, and to build upon what you experienced with the programming section, which is probably the most valuable tool that we have in there. In the beginning, we have bedrock. We give you the map exactly what to do, when they will fail, and adjustments you need to make when you see this. We've put enough athletes through that. Yeah. We know when, where, and how they sure. will fail sure. and provide that information. And that's where you learn to coach is on the bedrock program and we can anticipate what you'll see, where your athletes will fail, and help guide you through that. And once you learn how to coach, the new iteration of the program is a template. So this goes to the, the mission that John was explaining earlier. We are putting you in a position where we want you to see and set you free. So we provide an awesome strength template that you can provide, and now I'll steal Luke Summers, a thin candy shell <laughs> with your warm-ups and your accessory work uh, to go there. Yeah. So Bedrock, hey, follow it as we've provided, but yeah. now the awesome new intermediate field strong level program template. The strength is there. The sprints are there. But you get an opportunity to to really learn how to, how, how to program, right? We teach you how to coach, and now you can learn – effectively how to program based off an individual that's in front of you. Yeah. We interrupt this episode with a shameless self-promotion. Do you want to build thick sidewalk splitting slabs of muscle? Let me introduce you to Jack Street. Get access to the same tried and true training methods I followed during my 10 years in the NFL, all to walk into training camp at 308 pounds at sub 8% body fat. Punch your ticket to the gain train and join thousands of residents already following Jack Street. Head to PowerAthleteHQ.com forward slash Jackstreet and claim your seven-day free trial today. Now back to the show. Difference between a template and a program uh, is pretty interesting. I design everything in templates, which means like I understand, but I, I, I understand everything from like an architectural standpoint, right? Like I'm going to look at the blueprint. Here's the blueprint. Now what you're asking, uh, whereas most people want a rendering. I think the rendering is like the artistic eye, which I'm not looking to be influenced by the artist. I'm looking to look at the nuts and the bolts. Show me what you created and show me the architecture. I want to understand your template because what I've found so often is people would write programs and if they couldn't explain or show me the template in which it was built, I realized that they didn't understand the principles. What they were just doing is they were just drawing pictures. Um, you know, I want to know everything from a fundamental aspect. Like I want to understand the hierarchy. Like, what are you trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish over the six weeks and how are you trying to get there? Um, so what I did is I provided a template and for a lot of people, they'll be like, ah, oh, this is, uh, you know, uh, you know, here's an X and this and these, uh, these other pieces. And it really comes down to this thing called specificity, which is 
I know what I need my athlete to do today, but what can they do and execute to the best of their ability? Well, I'll use Victor because we worked with him this morning. You know, uh, there's a, a certain movement pattern that we needed to pull. Uh, we were pulling heavy trap bar today. Um, you know, the issue we were going into is that for him at that pull height, we end up getting some neurological shutdown. So what we have to do is block it up. So instead, what do I do? I have those wagon wheels, those big plates. I have them pull all of his deadlifts from the wagon wheels because it's just above the point. If we go any deeper, we start getting a bunch of hip shift and we see the glute kind of turn off. If I can space the bar up a little bit higher, just below the base of the knee, the pull is fine. Um, so, I mean, there's an issue where for me, especially as I get farther out on the trap bar, I start to feel limitation in my shoulder and it's good because I want to feel that limitation. But, you know, the only difference is uh, I'm not going to be able to pull 600 pounds on that trap bar on that specific trap bar, but on a straight bar, I can pull it because I can't stabilize when I get too far out, but it doesn't mean I don't do it. It's because it assesses a weakness and I want to do it. Um, you know, or, uh, we know that let's say for Victor axial loading shuts him down. Um, so does it make sense to just do heavy barbell back squats or kabuki bar squats? No. So what do we do? We set him up in the belt squat where the weights around the waist and the dude is stronger than anybody in the gym in the belt squat because the loading is around his waist. It's below where he's having some issues in his back. You know, think about all the glute stuff we do with him and, you know, the kickbacks. And really what I'm doing is I'm trying to basically look at like, whether it be PAP or uh, French contrast when we add some of the other stuff, but being able to use some form of max effort using a ton of manual resistance. Uh, and then all the strongman stuff that I've been using, which I call the density training, which if you've followed field strong, Jack street, Johnny Wad, really anything, you'll understand that, I love density training, which looks like heavy, uh, heavy, hard, and awkward. So we use sandbags, we use D balls, there's kettlebells. Um, you know, we use a bunch of fat bar, uh, poles. Um, you know, we'll use a ton of arms. I know we do a bunch of vertical poles, um, you know, pulling off the, off of, uh, off of gi belts and other pieces. So, I mean, it's really anything that, uh, that has to be heavy, uh, and just develops that, that density and that, uh, that tensile strength as I like to refer to it as. Yes. And so we explore the, the principles of said, so the specific adaptation. So the, the, the programming template is guided by said, but then we also really spend a lot of time investing in the understanding specificity, which is now your opportunity to, to make adjustments. You're still going to squat, but now it'd be a belt squat versus this yeah. squat. Uh, you know, offensive lineman doing the safety bar squat versus the barbell back squat sure. in the, in a collegiate weight room. So guiding you for adjustments like that, but still within the, the blueprint of athleticism and small adjustments to keep you progressing in your proficiency and your coordination and hypertrophy, depending on what the adaptation, the targeted adaptation on the program is. Yeah. Well, I mean, people get romanced with, uh, oh, I, I like to do this movement. We get, every athlete has to squat. Okay until they can't. And then what? And then is the squat only a squat when the bar's on your back? Well, if it's a squatting motion, I can use a belt squat. Or uh, if I can use like a, a pitch shark, which we had, which I actually might go back and get now that I think about it. Because there's some stuff I'd like to do with some single leg on those guys. Um, but, you know, even using um, like, uh, you know, some of the overspeed and some of um, like, uh, you know, the French contrast stuff, where now all of a sudden we're using bands in these different movements. You can loop a bunch of bands around a trap bar and we don't can, cover that in the course. However, no, no, we don't. But I mean, as I start to develop 
um, the like the the Dragon Slayer deal, we are always going to do something heavy. There's going to be something dynamic, and they have to do some form of displacement. So uh, something to go fast, and then they got to be able to jump. Uh, the bridge that I found between the weight room and the field, the jujitsu mat, really came down to their uh, body to move or to move their bodies through space dynamically with a lot of the plyometric movements. Uh, the all the dynamic med ball work that we done or that we do that we have done and we do uh, has paid such dividends for those guys just within the rotation and the throws. I mean, it's, it's night and day to the point where I can see them roll and we can see some of the jujitsu and and even some of the judo throws in this and realize like their ability to put their foot in the ground and be able to throw a med ball, catch and react and do something with it is just, I can see a one-to-one. So, I mean, all of that, um, med ball work that I did with um, athletes' performance and some of the GPP med ball work I did through Charlie Francis um, that's worked its way into not only my NFL training, but also worked big time into all of the power athlete programs has paid such huge dividends. The, the deal that I'm using now, and it just took me a number of years to find because we would use a wall, we'd use this. I mean, now what we did is we found this thing called the Defender, which is actually a football pad that's on a spring. And we do all the med ball work around it so that it actually loads and comes back and has a reactive nature to it. So uh, if you don't hit it right, it doesn't bounce back. Um, If you don't throw it hard enough, it kind of turns flaccid. So that piece has just been really amazing. Um, But it's really just finding the tools that allow you to do it. Like like going and getting the heavier kettlebells. Like uh, you, there's no way to swing a 203 pound kettlebell poorly. You either have to know how to how to do it and have to be able to bridge and hold yourself, or you can't. Yes, and the the value and the lesson there is. Why'd you get so excited when I said flaccid? Uh, no reason. The it's funny. It's a funny. It word. is. It's a funny joke. Uh, uh, Arash said that you uh, stopped by the mothership. Yeah, comedy. Did uh, was it? Uh, Rush told me he got up and did a little open mic. Did were you there when he was there? No, I I he fortunately led me to the the main room, I believe. Mm. I don't think he's main room material yet. Uh, he did. Uh, he said he got one minute, and he was he was doing great for about fifteen seconds, and it tailed off for about forty five. He was his giving his act got real flaccid. Uh, it did get flaccid. He uh, I uh, he was trying to basically make jokes about how he used to be like three hundred fifty pounds, and now you know the only difference between three fifty and two fifty is just the uh, uh, the quality of woman at which you hook up with. And uh, he said it like he got a few jokes, but it didn't last. I think he should do something on his ears. You know, he's got cauliflower ears. And uh, I thought it would be funny if uh, he did a joke on like um, how like the cauliflower ear is like the American Express card to get you out of trouble. Because if you were at a bar, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe the listeners at home or maybe you do this and you're looking at this guy like, oh, this guy's kind of small, this. And then you see the cauliflower ears, you're like, nah. Buy a beer. Yeah. The only way you're getting those. So he was going to be making a joke about like he didn't want to get in fights anymore. So he went home and he was rubbing his ears with his, with his knuckles to try to get, he, no, he didn't get them that way. Uh, but you can kind of cauliflower your ears on purpose. So I thought it would be a funny kind of lead in to be like, it's just a bunch of ways for a bunch of like wimpy dudes to be able to get out of bar fights is to cauliflower their ears. And I've been coming up with a, uh, a um a fake ear that you can strap on that give you the look of cauliflower ears and i, I was like dude you could do a whole bit on just the fact that you have those you know because as a big dude who's you know he's kind of like a big imposing guy you have to use a lot of self-deprecating humor if um i, I picked that up from uh who was the guy that we went and saw with brian callum um His the the, name the tall dude is it mac brian mac no, kevin it's not brian. kevin 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 yeah so kevin uh, kind of big, good-looking dude. Yeah, Kevin yeah. Mack. Like big, he has a lot of funny, self-deprecating humor. 
um, because I think it's the only way as a big dude who's like, you know, doesn't look like a, a Klingon that you're probably going to get some laughs is you have to be kind of a little self-deprecating in that way. You know, I'll tell you, uh, and I don't give out this compliment lightly, but probably the greatest master of self-deprecating humor I've ever been around, Callie Hinsman. Unbelievable self-deprecating humor to the point where she would beat me to the punch to the point. And the problem with, or the issue with self-deprecating humor is if you do make fun of somebody after they've already made fun of themselves, you just seem like a dick. So Callie's like, oh yeah, I'm just going to get it all out of the way. It's kind of like, uh, I know you're not a big pitch, pitch perfect fan. You ever seen pitch perfect? I'm familiar. So in it, rebel Wilson, who's the Australian chick. I'm familiar. She's like, oh, my name's fat Amy. And they're like, your name's fat Amy. She's like, yeah, I'm going to call myself fat Amy before you twig bitches call me fat. I always thought that was funny. When uh, I watched the movie with my daughters, they thought that was the funniest part of the entire movie. Oh, she's she's quite funny. Yeah, she's got a good sense of humor. Very very quick. Yeah, I did. Callie was in town this weekend. Nice. So we went bowling and she, her nickname, she was in charge of nicknames on the on the teleprompter. Uh. She went with hooves. Oh. Uh. A throwback. That is. That's a good one. Uh, oh yeah, she didn't didn't she have a, her, like her woman summit or something? Well, that's what they call it. It's just the DC girls. Just a bunch of moms trying to get away from their kids. Uh-huh. Yeah, pretty smart. Yeah, the, the DC crew. The Yes. And uh, Kelly and I are presenting at the tactical NSEA Tactical Conference in August nice. in Vegas. Oh, badass. So we're teaming up in the presentation. It's called Give Injuries a Rest. Ooh, a pun? Of course. Nice. And uh, yeah, speaking towards police officers. Nice. Well, she's in that market. Um, yeah. No, it's great, dude. Um, but yeah, I um, I hope that the methodology can provide people the framework that they need to build upon their coaching style. I mean, I, uh, like, I get nervous when people just parrot stuff. Like I don't need somebody to be a, a version of me. I need them to be the best version of themselves. And the only way you do that is by providing them the information. And I felt so much of the CrossFit stuff was um, was just this like autistic parroting of Glassman, where you know like people would listen, they'd watch the videos, and they would just like throw out these cues because they heard somebody else did it, and it was this kind of deal where I don't really know what I'm looking at. But like they gave these cues and it effectively made people move better. So I'm just going to like vomit cues at people. And uh, that doesn't work for me. Um, if anything. You well, know, we also know it doesn't work for athletic development. No, it doesn't. Just screaming at people. Um, there was an offensive line coach that I did not have, but uh, was for one of my teammates. And uh, the coach didn't know what the fuck he was doing. So he used to just scream, fight your ass off. Just get out there and fight your ass off. That's all he would say. And so one of the guys I played with was like, yeah, we didn't really get coached, but uh, he screamed, fight your ass off a lot. And that's the interesting thing with offensive line coaches. Um, a lot of offensive line coaches didn't play the job or don't understand it on a granular level. So what they do is they just teach whatever you know their mentor taught. So if you're a Howard Mudd guide, you're going to teach this and this. And these guys just end up becoming really good at parroting somebody else's information. And I had a good talk with Nick Hardwick about this, about understanding like, hey, I know what you're trying to teach, but I'm going to tell you why this doesn't work for me based upon my athletic skill set, my body, who I am. So I'm going to teach this. And even when we had Joe Thomas on the podcast, he said the exact same thing. You know, uh, you have to figure out what works for you. And just listening to somebody scream, fight your ass off or do this or this doesn't really pay dividends. The same can be said for the strength coach or the CrossFit coach is you are limited by your experience 
I'll you credit John. The, you uh, failed the John, emergency John Wellborn. Well, let's give him credit. Uh, no, that was Greg Glassman. Like, <laughs> and I, I, dude, I, I give Greg a ton of credit because he, you, he, he said things to me that I wrote down that I use in almost daily. People fail at the margins their experience. He told me, and I have never heard a statement so true, so often. I mean, and and when things happen that are, you know, like, oh, shit, like I didn't see that one coming or this, something happens. You're like, dude, they're filling the margins of their experience. This is how far they go, and this is the expectation. So they have to do the best that they can. And it's, it's not faulting them in any way. It's just the fact that they need to extend their margin. Yes. And, the, I mean, the motivation, the worry is that the athletes will then be limited in their performance. Yeah. So then this this is a tool to help coaches understand because, I mean, the same – as an offensive line coach on a, a football staff, I imagine is the same as the strength coach at a lot of high schools. You are the low man on the totem pole. I don't want to do that job. You go manage the weight room. Yeah. You go be offensive line coach because I don't want to do that. Yeah, a bunch of fat kids and push each other around. But uh, there's a lot of nuance in offensive line play. And Similar to the weight room. Yeah. I mean, and uh, I'm always disappointed with um, high schools or uh, just – Anybody can be a strength coach. It's just lifting weights. It's kind of 10 over and over again, right? Bob Wellborn. And uh, there's so much nuance and there's so much variation and specificity. And there's so much like, uh, like to watch three different athletes and even Jacob, he came and deadlifted with us today, pull a trap bar off the ground and watch three different, completely different movement patterns based upon anthropometrical ratios, limitations, strength, the whole deal. And, uh, you know, now I'll show you, so now you throw in like injury and mileage and flexibility and, and like this, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating to see the same implement handed to three people or four people. And as you know, me, I don't really coach at first. I usually wanted to see what you come up with. Like I'm real big on athletic problem solving. Uh, I always get nervous when coaches just start coaching out the gate and like into this, I'll be like, let's get underneath. Let's see what you got. Like, let's get your setup right. Now I want you to pull. And now I can make corrections. And like seeing Jacob's pull versus Victor's pull versus Arash and this Philippe and myself seeing all these different pulls and then realizing limitations, position, and this. And then you start fixing things. And ideally, there's a best movement pattern for everybody, but every pattern is slightly different because everybody's built different. You know, like think about the best squat. I can get everybody their best squat. Everybody's squat's going to look a little bit different because everybody has a different skill set they're working for. But we know enough tweaks that eventually I can get you to the perfect squat. You just have to give me enough opportunity. Yes, and the course provides uh, case studies based off of life cycle of an athlete. And this adds value to the point where the programming lecture is two parts. The first is bedrock. So you can learn to coach. Hopefully you're coaching more than one person so you can see deadlifting you can see squatting where the value is setting them up and then providing the one two directions that they need versus just throwing random cues mm -hmm. just word vomiting because you want to boost your your ego as a coach versus what the individual needs for success which is sometimes nothing mm -hmm. which is sometimes more weight or encouragement yeah or just some people just need somebody to believe in them. Like that's, that's become I, like, I'll tell you, like if, uh, if you were to ask me, you know, many years ago, what is the most impactful thing you'll learn about coaching athletes? 
you know, I would have given you like sets and reps and this and movement and here and here. It's not. It's not at all. People sometimes just need somebody to believe that they can do it. And, um, you know, Arash said it to me best. I mean, you know, he was what, 292, 296 when we started. Um, I handed him a very basic diet, gave him a very basic set of parameters like, hey, this is what the training's going to look like three days a week. I know what your JIT stuff. You owe me X amount of jump roping and training outside the gym here. And I need you to monitor the calories. I need you to wait. Sundays, you're going to send me this and this. And I was like, and we're going to go on this journey together. And I believe that you can do this. And all of a sudden, like, 12 weeks later, he's lost the weight. Matt Pollock, same thing, 270 down to 236. Put him on a same similar deal. Um, this is what the deal is. This is what you owe me. This is this. And I believe you can do it. Both of those guys hit their mark 100%. And Arash made a great point. He's like, I knew I knew how to do it. I just needed somebody to believe in me to do it. And uh, I told him, I'm like, I got broad shoulders. If you need me to believe in you, and I mean, even Matt, Matt sent me a, a video from him wrestling in college. And he's like, God damn it. I wish I knew you then. Like I could have, like my conditioning is so much better. I was so deficient. I was too heavy. I couldn't move. I couldn't do all these things. I wish I had just had somebody that understood it better. And I think, um, you know, as you go on your journey in this, like that's a huge piece of like just telling people, like, I believe in you. I, I wouldn't be here. Like, I'm not telling you, I'm not lying to you. I'm, I believe that you can do this. Now we just have to put a plan together and we have to hold each other accountable to it. So, uh, you know, that's where you get into this, where at the end of this whole thing, I, uh, you know, I, th I think, I think for me, um, I personally, and this, maybe this is a personality issue. I didn't need anybody to believe in me. I was going to do shit in spite of people. And I think it was because I had early on, I had some coaches that were jerks and who had their own issues in this. And I was like, fuck these people. I'm going to be successful in spite of these assholes. And I almost wonder how much more I could have accomplished if I had had somebody outside of my brother and my family who was like, no, no, I believe in you. You can do this and I'm going to help you on your journey. And, um, you know, that was, uh, you know, you spend a lifetime trying to prove people wrong. It'd be um, nice to prove people right and feel that some people are in your corner. Yes. And the, that's, that's good coach. You establish an expectation. You can still hold them uh, accountable to that potential. And I mean, that's representative of the term potential. Yeah. There's plenty of people that. Well, I mean, for, for you, especially coaching lacrosse guys, you know, I mean, there has to be some emotional connection where now all of a sudden you as their coach, they know that, that what you want is their best success and for them to play their best. And I think sometimes with coaching, uh, we, you know, and, and this is this is interesting between the strength coach and, and like the coach, because I look at like, hey, me working with these guys who are, you know, I don't train them on the mat. Right. I roll with them and I get to see what they do. But like when they get to come train with me, it's about establishing limitations, fixing these problems and making them better versions of themselves and then sending them out there and then getting information back. And they'll be like, dude, I, I did something I wasn't able to. I'm so much stronger. I'm faster. This is what I'm able to do. I couldn't do this and I can do this, which is where you get these light bulb moments, which I think is so fun about the strength conditioning piece and the performance piece. Whereas as a, as a sport coach, you know, does that happen in the same regard? I don't know. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think in offensive line play, you know, if I can teach somebody a technique or how to do it and they can go out and use it and be effective and win, does it have the same light bulb moment opposed from a Ruiz working with me and then me going back and being like, fuck dude, I'm way better than I used to be where I could see those skills that blade was so sharp, you know, think about sharpening an ax and cutting it in one stroke opposed from putting three strikes to get through the wood and then realizing like, was it my technique? No, that blade was just really fucking sharp. 
I don't have an answer for you because my coaching career began as strength and sport coach. So I had them in the weight room and then I had them in the warmups and then I would teach skill. So you utilize the weight room and the sport to cross communicate. We're going to set up in the squat like we set up on defense and then back to, you know, failure and posture position. Okay. What was our foot position on that at play? And you have the film and then you have the, the weight room as feedback. So I've been extremely fortunate to have both. Sure. And then I've been only strength coach and that just fucking sucks because you don't get any respect. Why is that? I, low man on the totem pole. Is it because like uh, lacrosse doesn't respect strength conditioning? No. Like our Georgetown was 225 bench test and then uh, some, some conditioning test. I couldn't recall. I'll tell you what it was. And I got into it and I don't mind saying this, but the, uh, they had an assistant coach. He was the low man on the totem pole. He would still, he was the closest to playing age. So he came in and worked out with the team and that was his way of like earning their respect is doing all of our training. He won his national championship with a, a team and then now coaching at Georgetown and he credited his championship to their conditioning test. So Took it upon himself to give the head strength and conditioning coach and myself, it was just an assistant, the test that led his team to the national championship. Was it the beep test? No, it was, uh, I would have to text the the coach to get it. But it was just a lot of 20s, a lot of 30s, and um, just basically mental toughness. So if this is a test of mental toughness, okay. But he didn't come out, out it like that. Is this a test to make sure our dudes did their winner packets he didn't come out like that so then this goes into the 3p model and our coach's Mm -hmm. responsibility which i was armed with and still the the push and the ego was not willing to hear me a strength coach a division three athlete not a national champion division one there's a lot of that in the sport of lacrosse um but he's he's he was like with a white goodman i'm better than you and i know it Mm. And despite of the world travel, coaching, and cross-sport and movement athleticism experience that I had had at that moment, uh, still battling in arguments, if they're not willing to listen, as you know as a rhetorician, rhetorian, rhetorician. Yeah, rhetorician. If they're not willing to listen, this is not going to go well. Well, I mean, that comes down to the art of debate and skill. Um, being able to provide somebody mentorship and use the three prong attack in that moment. The problem is they have to be humble enough what to listen to this information. And I've dealt with people like this. The only problem is, uh, or not the only problem, but like, you know, at the end of the day, I have such a cool trump card with having played a decade in the NFL, which is there's only a handful of people that have. We, yeah, this individual couldn't get up the ethos, couldn't get past the ethos to listen to. The logos, the pat, anything. Well, but I mean, that's more, um, I mean, that's less about you and more about him. Like the age old, when the master's ready, the student appears. I, and when the student, you know. and then, I'll look up if he's even coaching anymore. Because yeah. that's also well, a trend. It's probably very hard. Some of the biggest battles uh, at the collegiate level against myself, because I walked a, a very interesting line. And this is, uh, you remember in The Departed? When they asked Leo, 
where he would go on weekends and spend weekends with his dad in Southie. Mm-hmm. And then during the week, be it like private school with his mom in Connecticut, yeah. live in two different lives. So during the week, this is when N- NSCA and CrossFit with her in their big lawsuit. Sure. So during the week, I was with NSCA people that just fucking hated CrossFit and sure. anything to do with it. But then if you looked at their training, guess what it was? CrossFit. Yeah. GPP. Yeah. A surprise. And then on weekends, go and travel to Buenos Aires and Nuremberg, Germany and Italy and Australia and, you know, wherever in the U.S. And then have to be Tex. But then during the week, be Chris sure. and just the CrossFit people hated NSCA because that's what they were told to do. The NSCA people hated CrossFit because I guess, I don't know, they they hated themselves. But just this interesting dichotomy, and I had to be prepared to argue both. Sure. Um, but nothing compared to the battles with sport coaches. Strength coaches somewhat. Uh, that, that's so interesting for me, um, mainly because I just don't have any experience doing it. Um, you know, like I, I never uh, strength coached at a Division One school, um, you know, uh, so I don't know about those kind of pulls piece, but I, I do know like in my relationship with like the jujitsu guys, I mean, you know, Shanji approaches me about working with these dudes and, um, you know, as I go and get feedback from him, he's like, you know, the conditioning is better. They're stronger. They're able to do more things that they weren't able to. And, you know, Victor's not in pain and Philippe's moving better in this. And so Shanji's looking at it from a very real position, but he's also, he's coaching him. He's training with them. Like um, before Victor left for Brazil, I was like, you know, hey, you rolled him. How was it? And he's like really annoying. He was really strong. He, you know, like I, I thought he was going to hurt me. And that was a good indication that they were going in the right direction. I think as a, as a sport coach, you know, as you know, when the strength coach asks you like, how do they look? And you're like, do they look strong? They look fast. This is easier. I mean, it's a symbiotic relationship. You're trusting these people to sharpen your blades and make your horses run. And I, I, I can't understand how that's not like a mutually beneficial, mutually respected deal. It's like, hey, like I'm going to get make sure that their skills are are there and available, and they're going to play at a high level. You have to make sure that my horses run and that they're in good shape, and that they're strong and we don't have injuries. You take care of that. I'll take care of this. And if uh, if it's not going the right direction, I'll tell you. Be like, they're not as strong. They're not as fast. Their conditioning is down. But if you're moving in the right direction, like it, it, like I, I can't. But I also don't understand the small mindedness of a lot of college sports. You know, seems yeah, like a bunch of dudes. It's not just lacrosse. Feels like a bunch of like little dick energy. Which uh, coming, you know, I mean, I hear that song played all the time. The big dick energy. I mean, it feels like a lot of people who don't feel validated fighting for their own little piece of this world so that they can validate themselves instead of realizing it's not about you, you fucking asshole. It's about taking these athletes on a journey and effectively preparing them to do a task. You know, it's, uh, it's like, I always go back to when I had the opportunity to sit at this very table and have a conversation with Derek Woodsky at a 2017, um, yeah, power athlete symposium and as i was getting in and we were kind of swapping stories i started to feel this like competition that he was somehow one-upping me and that he was better than me and i got this like weird competitive nature and then as he was telling a story i had this like voice in the back of my head that said it's not about you you fucking asshole get out of your own way let him have his moment it's about him and i just shut up 
and I kept giving him little volleys and we had our moment to the point where he told the story about doing the microblogs and the guy passing away and his friends read it to him. And then we just had this amazing moment. I paused, I let it marinate and I just stood up and fucking clapped and the whole room exploded. And, um, I think about that quite often when I'm training and whether it be with my kids or, or anything else that, uh, it's not about you. It's about giving them the space to breathe so that they can accomplish what they need to accomplish without me micromanaging everything. Yes. And, uh, it was speaking of the symposium in 2019, the final symposium, Raf closed this down and he, he did a beautiful presenting and all these are on YouTube. If you just look power athlete symposium and Woodski or Raphael Ruiz, they're available. Raf spoke on essentially his life cycle of an athlete. And then, uh, he spoke to one, two and three, uh, components and the, the new conclusion and idea that Raf had. So I, I work changes every week, <laughs> but to my point, yeah, the presentations point, the, uh, when I was working with him, Raider was three years old. Mm-hmm. And so Raider was in this, um, uh, very immersive environment because we were working with athletes for 20 hours a day and now I had one, two, I had notes on all three phases of the athlete and then Raf presented this new phase. Um, so then the fourth phase was his lessons learned from Raider growing up and then the, the unprogrammed moments. So what effectively an athlete or your kid picks up that you didn't necessarily teach them. Mm-hmm. So how you act how you respond to stress, you know, different words. Maybe I remember, uh, I forget if it was Jamie or Killy, the story of Fuck. It reacting exactly like yeah. when, when you were cut off. Yeah. Um, but as an example, that reference story I'm familiar with, but just the, the, the posture, the, the presence, the professionalism or not so much those things that athletes start to pick up in that energy from you. So it could be in a, a fathership a father role, a leadership role, or just as an athlete when you're a 10-year NFL veteran versus when you were a rookie. Mm-hmm. And that essence that you just carried with your career and then, dude, us on the road traveling and teaching seminars. Just you drop me anywhere in the world at this moment in time versus when I was just, oh, fuck, John's in the back listening. Well, I mean, think about the confidence. Like that was something that, you know, for, for what, whatever you want to say, I mean, just the confidence, the fact that like I can walk into any room, I can show up anywhere in any country with a backpack, walk in there, clap my hands and be like, let's rock and roll. And I can get 40 people moving. Um, that power of, um, I mean, I, it's not that it's, it's rare. It's not that many people can do it. And I had this theory that early on that either you have it or you don't. And I think that for you, one of the greatest things is we, we matured it because I didn't know that you had the confidence and early on. And a big part of this was like me being like, you can do this and you did and you crushed it. And, you know, same with Luke and with Callie and, you know, uh, Ben, not so much, um, you know, Ben couldn't get out of his own way in a lot of ways and he never has, uh, he couldn't like just humble himself and just get out of his own way and do it. And it's why he just ended up kind of playing himself out. Like there was a big piece of like, 
being humble enough to absorb the information, but then also this intrinsic um, desire to do a good job. Like that's, that's, I think what, what really sets people apart. I have uh, this overarching desire to do a good job. If you ask me to do something, I can't half-ass it. I don't know how to not do a good job. And I might not do a good job, but like it doesn't mean that I don't want to do a good job. Like I can't even like, ah, oh, just kind of throw it out there. Like I, I can't do it. It's just like, uh, like everything has to be, um, it has to be done to a point at which I am proud of the product. And I think for you guys, you know, developing people or, you know, getting people out, um, uh, like I would have zero, put it like this. I would, I would be completely, my head would fucking pop off if the people that have worked for me and the people that I've taken, you know, and developed and that we've developed together can't show up and absolutely fucking crush it in front of a group of people, educating them and doing knowledge. Like you said, you're going to get on the stage with Callie and teach. I have no doubt that it'll be the best presentation that entire weekend that like people will cheer. Yeah. People will cheer and carry you off on their shoulders. Like I fucking probably carry Callie off, but yeah. Yeah. All right. It's because I've seen Hinsman get up there and make magic. I've seen you get up there and convert people. I mean, we've done it from, you know, the the tip of the spear with Naval Special Warfare Development Group to, you know, fucking Nuremberg, Germany and New Zealand and Australia and, and you know, Ohio and everywhere. In small town high school kids. Like yeah. Wimber, the Wimberley football player. It doesn't yeah. matter, but it does. it's, it's, it's or, movement and performance. Yeah. And people can sense a fraud. I've, I've, I've this is something I wrestle with kind of constantly where I hear information and I disseminate the information. Like, um, you know, we, uh, we had David Weck on the podcast and for those of you guys that don't know, check out his Weck method. Um, he's, you know, teaching something that's a kind of against the standard paradigm and he has a set of ideas and he creates these different inventions. He was the BOSU ball creator. And, uh, we had him on listen to a, a really interesting origin story and how he got to this and his observation in this. And, uh, I'm fascinated enough. I want to go to his event. He's going to come on. Uh, we're going to do an in-person pod, but, um, I want to hear his information and I want to see the practical application. And I want to know, can he stand up there and convert people the way that we can? Um, I like to think that like, if we were going to bang everybody, we banged them all. Like there was like, you know, that age old of, uh, you know, what was it? Uh, like we brought it up earlier with uh, almost famous where like you find the one guy not getting off and you get them off and that's what I'm going to do. But being able to go in and convert people, not with just your words, but the movement, the information, it's professional. It makes sense. I can teach it. I can allow you to have your moment where all of a sudden we see it. And how many times did we see this within the confines of the seminar where all of a sudden somebody you're like, they got it. Now we get to move on. Let's go. And they're fucking in, in for a penny in for a pound. And so for you guys, I mean, just the fact like, you know, even like, you know, Luke's ability to go out and do that stuff, like all of that and the showmanship and all that, like the only way you get that opportunity is through the reps and being able to go out and pour it out there. And I think you guys, you know, have done amazing and whatever you guys do, I know you guys will always be amazing because you have that foundation. Yes. And yeah, taking the risk, but putting skin in the game. I love the reference of, yeah, your name on your Jersey and what that, that meant and represented. So having that weight on the shoulders to convert and not taking it personally, just thinking of the people on the end of the line that will benefit from my ability to communicate the value of this information. Yeah. 
Uh, and I mean, our feedback loop as presenters, it was real. Yeah. So, and uh, we were never shying away from those conversations. Uh, I do laugh. Uh, the last seminar we taught for at CrossFit Froning, what was it called? Ma- Mayhem. Yeah. Cookville. Cook Cookville. So the last seminar that we taught, um, I ended up having to refund a lady. First time I ever funded anybody because she was so upset by the amount of profanity we used. And I can't remember if it was me or if it was Luke because I think Luke taught some something there. And I know you're not a big profanity guy, but uh, Luke was just dropping F-bombs. And then the problem is, is then um, it's like drinking. The minute I hear F-bombs, I start dropping F-bombs. So like I, I could be pretty good, but then if somebody starts cursing a lot, I start cursing a lot. And I remember the woman was so upset by the amount of F-bombs. I think she counted it. Like there was like 174 F-bombs used over the weekend, which seemed kind of light to me, but that it completely destroyed her ability to learn and destroyed the value of the seminar because of the profanity. And I, uh, and she demanded her money back and I was like, pay, pay that woman, pay that woman her money. Don't splash the pot. He's like, <laughs> I dude, I watched rounders the other day. Uh, it's, it, it, it's, uh, I have it on my phone as I was flying to Montana. I watched it and dude, John Malkovich's part where he's like, paid that man his money is so ridiculous. And then to hear Matt Damon be like, he did this. And, uh, he's like, I'm not a very good actor and his terrible Russian accent. It's, it, I love it. Yeah. That's one of the rewatches. Yeah. Departed. Yeah, the part Love is good. that on a plane. Dude, do you remember the part where he like shoots the wo- uh, shoots the woman and he goes, ah, she kind of felt funny. Mm-hmm. Improv. Like that is the sickest line. That means he's killed enough women to know when he shoots them how they're supposed to fall. Like that's that was one of the parts where I was like, this is a sick movie. Yeah. And that that wasn't in the script. Oh, he just improv that. Uh huh. So he and Scorsese, I'll have to find the social. This is just from Instagram. Just a clip on it. He basically said, well, they wanted to show the 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 psycho that that he was. And he's like, well, why not two people? It's going to be the man that we're going to kill and his woman. So then, okay, then how about this? Uh, and then had her directed the fall and then just dropped that line. So none of that was in the original script. It was Jack Nicholson like calling the shots day of mm-hmm. to help paint the picture of this psychopath storytelling going back to uh no it's great so earlier awesome well dude i think uh i think the methodology is in good hands i know we got a little bit of uh writing to go back and fix uh to finish up the book piece but i think that the second version this version is a lot more evolved and it just feels much more complete and so i'm excited to see what the world thinks of it yeah as it should be so this is i mean decades decade 20 2009 more more than that in the making and uh yeah all focused on application because it's that from our experience the biggest limitation within the strength and conditioning field you can have as many certifications as you want but if it doesn't improve your ability to coach and teach and make an impact what good does it do i don't know well well thank you for yeah. Uh, another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye.
This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, go to trainheroic.co forward slash powerathletehq. And now, back to the show. 